Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I've been very excited about this roundtable that we've been trying to connect for a couple of weeks now and had some intermittent issues, internet censorship, you know, who know who knows what was stopping us from connecting as it usually be, is the case these days, but we're going to connect today with some really high-level guests in my opinion, some of the best in their fields to talk about what's going on, get their perspectives and 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 some differing perspectives as I understand it in regard to what's going on in Ukraine. And and the lead up to that and a lot of other peripheral conversations that I've been discussing on the show, such as the CIA involvement long before this ever started or the Azov Battalion themselves or where this may go in the future. So joining me today, I'm very excited to introduce to, to in my opinion, the best investigative journalist in the field today, Vanessa Bealey, Eva Bartlett, as well as Alex Thompson joining us today. I'm very excited to welcome to the show for the first time was former GCHQ or Government Communications Headquarters, Russian speaker and regional expert, a regular guest on UK Call News. Alex, how are you today? Eva and Vanessa, welcome back. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I'm excited about this, guys, because this is such an incredibly controlled topic. I mean, we, we've been watching this stuff happen in every topic, foreign policy and everything else under the sun for a long time. But COVID and then into this, I've never seen two things be as, in my opinion, and maybe tell me if maybe I'm just new to this field in regard to some other people doing this for a really long time, but never seen it this obvious in regard to how clearly transparent their narratives are, how clearly subjective their po- their talking points are and how they're just forcing it in. It's actually incredible to me. So just right out of the gate, maybe just since I mentioned that, maybe whoever wants to jump in, give me your thoughts on how either you've seen this before or how unprecedented this seems right now. I think uh, Eva and Vanessa are more veterans of war coverage, (laughs) and they have a trans-regional, cross-regional focus. So maybe I'll give them the honor. (laughs) Eva? What What do you guys think? It just seems pretty outlandish right now. And now when you say that you're talking about the, the media slant, like the, the 24-7 hysteric uh, kind of coverage of what's going on in Ukraine? That as well as, in my opinion, I'm actually pretty just flabbergasted these days about how willing they are to just push in completely subjective narratives. For example, saying, you know, Ukraine said this and then even acknowledging how they really have no way of verifying whether it happened, yet they're just blindly reporting what they're told, yet putting just this like 30,000 lenses of skepticism on anything coming out of Russia, you know, which has always been like that. But am I wrong in thinking it's a little bit more pronounced than it's been in the past? It's hard for me to gauge whether it's more pronounced, but I mean, it certainly is a copy paste kind of uh, uh, from, from reporting on Syria, you know, from like the liberation of Aleppo, which Vanessa was witness to. And I was in the Aleppo just prior to the liberation and, you know, uh, media saying um, in chorus, Aleppo has fallen. And this is a, a city that was subject to terrorist bombings for years and, and siege as well. And, you know, just it was incredible to think that the city that had been liberated of Al-Qaeda and other um, terrorist forces had had in, in the, the eyes of Western media fallen when suddenly people could actually walk on the streets again mm-hmm. and not fear being uh, imprisoned and tortured and executed in public. And this was something we saw play out over and over again in different areas of Syria that were liberated. So uh, definitely we're, we're seeing like the same kind of like... Um, as you mentioned, taking sources that are in no way verifiable. Um, in Syria, we often heard them described as media activists or unnamed sources, or um, I'm sure I'm missing a couple, but basically they were always, uh, and Vanessa put it very well in a speech she gave uh, some years ago, uh, when she said basically the media effectively disappeared the vast majority of the Syrian population. 
and and in their reliance on these uh, media activists, unnamed sources, or if they were named, actually, it's quite easy to find very quickly their allegiances to the various terrorist factions. Um, but then, as as, as you said, Vanessa, uh, you know, the, the vast majority of Syrians that had uh, a different narrative that would have, you know, flown uh, starkly in the face of the dominant Western narrative were just not given airtime, even if the even if the media deigned to go to Syria. And, and that's that is something that I've seen in, in reporting on, on the Donbass, you know, um, I didn't go there until 2019. And I know there are, are Western journals that have been there covering it on the ground uh, for many, many years. But the vast amount of Western media reporting has been from Kiev or further abroad. Right. And uh, and there's just one other parallel I'll mention while it's in my head, and that is totally discounting the loss of life of the people in question. So in the Donbass, you know, I've heard different estimates of the loss of life of the, the, the deaths of the people of the Donbass from 14,000 to 20,000. Um, I can't give an accurate uh, statistic, which, which that is, but it's a significant enough um, estimate. And the vast majority of those would be civilians who have died uh, as a result of the uh, Ukrainian forces' uh, incessant shelling in violation of the different Minsk agreements um, of the people of Donbass, of civilian areas, including just, I believe, yesterday, bombing Donetsk, the heart of Donetsk, just like two weeks after they already did it and killed 21 people. Um, but when the media, if they even did report it, I mean, just for example, today I saw New York Post had taken a photo from Donetsk. Uh, at least I saw this. I haven't had time to verify it myself. But put, you know, front page reporting like Russian bombing of Kiev. And this was literally according to this post I saw, and I'm, I'm in good faith because this is something that's happened many times prior. Um, th this was from the affected area, the bombed area of Donetsk, bombed by Ukrainian forces. Um, and we, we saw this happen. I'm sure Vanessa can think of many examples, uh, many times over in Syria. But in reporting on Syria, when an area was terrorized by, you know, suicide or car bombing or just the relentless bombing of Jaysh al-Islam or any of the other terrorist factions, it either wasn't reported on or it was like uh, it was... Um, relegated as like not very important because the bomb was a small mortar or something like that, even though a mortar can kill an entire family or even kind of even more heinous. It was like, well, that was only an Alawi area. That was only a Shia area, you know? So like these people's lives don't matter. And it's the same thing uh, in, in the way they've reported on the breakaway republics, the separatists, you know, these are not people who simply didn't want to live under the rule of these Nazis in Ukraine. Um, that, which is by and large why they didn't want to, why they did want their autonomy. These are simply evil separatists, pro-Russian, you know, pro-Russian separatists. So it's really, it's a disgusting way of devaluing human life. And it definitely, we've seen that play over and over again with regards to reporting on Syria and the Donbass. Exactly. It's about devaluing the person on the other side of that gun. And it's it's disgusting and, and completely ignoring what's happening to them throughout this and before. And the overlaps there are just undeniable. When we could talk about any other field of war, the U.S. government and other governments along them have been involved in, you'll find the same parallels. It's pretty incredible. Unless there's any other discussions of parallel there, I'd like to start with, this is, like I was saying before we went live, I'm really actually quite in, 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 amazed that there's a lot of people, even in my inner circle, that are still a little bit they don't know all the ins and outs of what this was before. And, and we'll start with discussing Crimea, the Donbass region in general, and the 2014 regime change. Three very large topics in of, in of themselves. But let's start with just Crimea as a starting point, and let's discuss the difference there about what we're being told from the Western press and what 
is verifiable. I mean, let's not split hairs here. It's very obvious what ultimately happened. And that's not a partisan talking point. I mean, there's documentation and on and on. So give me your guys' thoughts on there. Why don't we start with uh, with Vanessa? Um, I was going to pass it over to Alex, actually. Oh, His go ahead. Then, not, knowledge of the area is, is way more extensive than mine. Then, Alex, why don't you begin? Well, as with the Irish Troubles, the question has to be, do you want the eight-year backstory, the 80-year backstory, <laughs> or the 800-year backstory? Let's um, go with the 800-year backstory, but in all right. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, what we're talking about is the Black Sea littoral, as in, you know, the coastal area around the Black Sea. That territory was uh, not populated by Slavs. When we're talking about the progenitor people of the Russian, Ukrainian and Belarusian nations, right? They had a single progenitor called Kievan Rus. And the heartland of those people was in the woods in the interior of Eastern Europe. For many centuries, it was not down on the coast where the Crimean Peninsula is. This was a very strategic territory that was ruled directly by Greeks for a long time, the Byzantine Emperor, and later on by the Mongol, otherwise known as the Tatar Horde. So you've got the dominant population there being the Crimean Tatars in the Middle Ages. You've got uh, a Khanate there. Uh, even when the Mongols leave, the Khanate continues to be a large state. And without getting too much into the ins and outs of it, um, slowly and surely the Eastern Slavs, at a time when they don't call themselves Russians or Ukrainians, those names come later, <clears throat> push themselves down uh, with the Cossacks in the lead. The, and the Zaporizhian Cossack Brigade is, is, is most particularly interesting because they're the, the, the first of the of the Ukraine, what's now the Ukrainians, to ask the Russians for help. We'll get into that maybe later. But they they eventually pushed down, and under the you know the the zenith of Russian statehood and military prowess, 1780 under Catherine the Great, they managed actually to take the final territory. Right, and there's there's naval successes against the Ottomans. So only re relatively recently was it uh, Slavic, and then you know specifically Russian state territory. But by the time it's taken as formal possession, it's the Russian state that's taken it. Uh, a century before that, the 17th century, they, the Russians within their empire, within the Tsarist empire, already have a territory that they call Ukraina, meaning on the borderland. This in a, this term in the Slavic languages is replicated elsewhere. There's a part of the Balkans known as the Krajina as well. It just means the borderland. And it's called the borderland. I suppose we better fill this in now, actually, and give you the rest. Because the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is, you know, it, it, OK, it's another Slavic kingdom, uh, at least dominantly Slavic, but it's Roman Catholic and Western aligned. It has been eating up this territory and almost bringing an end to Russian statehood. And that Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth runs, uh, its writ runs almost to the Crimea uh, for many of these centuries. Uh, and in, it's, it's in, in reaction against that, uh, Polish um, extortion by absentee landlords. Unfortunately, it also has to be mentioned that there was a, there was a middleman category of local Jews who uh, were the butt of many... Um, uh, uh, pogroms because of their role in collecting rent from the Ukrainians in the area uh, for these Polish absentee landlords. The dissatisfaction with this was so intense by the 17th century that the, that Cossack group I mentioned, and the Cossacks themselves, by the way, means free men. Uh, it's a, it's a, people who, who ran away from this Polish-Lithuanian domination. It was it was too oppressive for them. They're hiding out in the, in the marshes and around the Crimea. They uh, finally decide in the mid 17th century uh, to sorry in the in the 18th century to to call out for help to the Russians. No, I was right, right the first time, 17th century, you've got to get your centuries right here. And that's the first time that they see a rising state in Russia. 
that is offers them hope, right? Because they are of the same faith, uh, Eastern Orthodox Greek faith, whereas the state they are nominally in, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, is Roman Catholic and regards them as as uh, as, as untermenschen, uh, just there to generate wealth on these very large estates. Because Ukraine is extremely fertile land, of course, and had no tradition of statehood until till then, uh, before after Kiev and Rus. So uh, after that time, there's this seismic shift where. Uh, we could get into right bank and left bank, which is the 18th century history. But basically, it's more and more attractive for the Ukrainian peasants and for the Jews who have come to the Pale of Settlement, which anyone who knows their Eastern European history a bit will know that the Jews were being gradually squeezed out of Eastern Europe, of Western Europe and finding their way into the Tsarist Empire. These guys are actually finding that Russian rule is more to their taste than Polish-Lithuanian rule, or by this stage it would just be called Polish rule. So they actually start trickling into directly ruled Russian territory, the left bank of the Dnipro. And that's the history of it, right? To get to Crimea specifically, uh, you've got a century and a bit of Tsarist rule of the Crimea, where it's there's, there's no question what it is, it's Russia. There are no other nations within the Tsarist empire. There are governorates, gubernia, they're called, right? So nations like Ukraine and Georgia don't exist uh, in the Tsarist Empire. The whole thing is called Russia, right up through through to Finland. All of a sudden in 1917, you've got obviously the states uh, of the uh, former Tsarist Empire splitting up. For a while, some of them are ruled by the Germans. But the Crimea is held. And there are a number of state experiments at that time, actually. There are, um, there's a kind of a, a, a libertarian or, or, um, or, or minimal state uh, appro approach taken in one corner of the Ukraine. The Western Ukrainians, who are, have always been far more pro-Polish, try to break away. So you've got three or four states on the territory of what later becomes consolidated as Soviet Ukraine. But none of those four territories controls Crimea. It continues to be what, when, this, when Soviet rule crystallizes, the Crimea is within the RSFSR, the, the biggest of the 15 Soviet republics, the Russian Soviet Federated Socialist Republic. It, why would it be anything else? Its population is, right. well, until Stalin depopulates the Crimean Tatars to Central Asia, uh, it's, it's largely Crimean Tatars, but the Slavs that are there are Russians. I mean, actual Russians, not just Russian speakers, as you'll find in many parts of eastern and southern Ukraine, but Russian surnames, you know, R Russian um, family uh, uh, names, uh, Russian traditions. They are actual actual Russian Russians. It wasn't till Nikita Khrushchev in 1954 that more or less overnight um, the Crimea was given to Ukraine. Right. And the, the, the legality of this has been contested, even within, of course, it was only a paper construction, but there were there were constitutions for the Soviet Union and for the 15 constituent states and for the autonomous states within the 15 states. So the Crimea, as, a, as an autonomous part of first Russia and then Ukraine within the Soviet Union, had its own constitution. Uh, all of these levels. Was, you say it was given to Ukraine, given by, by whom? By Nikita Khrushchev, who himself rose to, to, to power in Ukraine. And one of the many, many angles here is that Eastern Ukraine, even by the late Tsarist period, was an industrial powerhouse. And hence, as happened all over Eastern Europe at the time, uh, an, an, an ethnic mental, melting, plot, uh, melting pot. Uh, large numbers of Jews, Russians, um, other so Russian nationalities moved in there and had done by the, the, the uh, arrival of Soviet power in the area. So this industrial uh, area that, that didn't have a single Ukrainian ethnic identity uh, was given by Lenin actually to what was previously a much further western state known as Ukraine which was much more agrarian and unified in being uh, un un Ukrainian speaking although half of it was Catholic, half of it was Orthodox, that was historic Ukraine. Suddenly this was all given 
uh, to this burgeoning entity, uh, to, together with even parts of, tra- you know, Transcarpathia was given from uh, Czechoslovakia, the Ruthenian territory. Parts of Romania were given. This was mentioned by Putin in his speech on the eve of the recognition of the territories on the 23rd of February. So, but all of that, that's within Ukraine minus Crimea, right? Crimea was not even by the most rabid Crimean, uh, rabid Ukrainian nationalist ever claims to be Ukrainian until overnight Khrushchev, uh, over the heads of the legal structures in place at the time, the equivalent of parliaments, though they had various names like presidiums, in Ukraine, in Russia, in Crimea, over their heads uh, said, right, the bosses of these territories are just going to sign pieces of paper and that's it. Because, of course, they thought they were creating a bit like postmodern Western man, Homo Sovieticus, a new man that had no uh, identity other than progress, right? They, they, he wasn't supposed to have an uh, ethnic or religious identity anymore. So who cares what what, what uh, territory you're in, whether it's called Russia or Ukraine? It's part of the Soviet empire. And, of course, that was intended to take over the whole world. So you can right? see the history, which makes it very clear. It's obvious that there's pl- an endless amount of reasons why they would be side stepping more towards the russian side of things than ukraine side of of things, regardless of the political situation right that's there, there, there were very few ukrainian speakers i mean I, my, my main connection with the region in the early days at least was christian mission and i remember hearing you know horror stories of, of naive american and european missionaries who would come with um you know boxes of uh, bibles to hand out if they were and if they were assigned a crimean uh, city they would look at the map think ah this is ukraine and they come with ukrainian bibles they couldn't shift them for love nor money. Nobody in, in Crimea would read a Ukrainian Bible. To this day, there's very few Ukrainian speakers there. So, Although that did change since 2014, which we'll get into later. It, yeah, and definitely. And, and, and I, I'm so fascinated by this. Like, I'd love just I'd love to talk about this just entirely. But to, in the interest of time, especially, let's let's jump over to the the present day or not present day. Mm-hmm. Let's just say the beginning of the dispute and, and then what ultimately happened in regard to the referendum and and the misrepresentation of that by the Western press and the governments involved. Right. Well, um, there was this uh, minor incident in 19th century history called the Crimean War when uh, Britain and France, for the first time in pretty much ever, decided to ally with each other, which was a a harbinger of of, of, uh, things to come. Instead of being each other's enemies, they were agreeing on containing Russia, as they later agreed on containing Germany as they rose to to a level economic and military status with Britain and France. And um, after that, it was regarded as essential by the existing powers, Britain and France, and to some extent the US at that time already, uh, that Russia must be denied Crimea because Sevastopol, which was governed separately, by the way, it was always a separate entity on a, on a par with Crimea, not part of Crimea, because it housed the, the only warm water port for the, for the Russian Navy. Uh, the, these two were, you know, they had to be denied uh, to the Russians. So that may if you take a very conspiratorial view, have had some uh, some bearing on what Khrushchev did. If you take the theory that there's a conspiracy theory for everything in Russia, obviously, there are those who say that Khrushchev was, you know, he had to be retired and sent off to his dacha when he was sent off because he was a, he was a plaything of Western capital. There's always a few people in Russia who claim this, but be that as it may, suddenly this new state uh, of the Ukraine in 1991 in it has got this territory and it immediately signs uh, the, the, well it's well known about the budapest agreements that they they relinquished their nuclear weapons whether they actually filed with the united nations the borders of their territory is open to dispute there seems to have been a suppressed speech by kofi annan uh, if it's genuine or not i don't know saying that ukrainians haven't actually lodged their borders with us so, so they're not properly constituted in international law mm-hmm. that's one argument but the ukrainians quickly said well we're strapped for cash we have plenty of raw materials but uh, we don't want to you know 
know, get into a, a, a feud with Russia, uh, we, we're desperately in, in need of recognition and support. So they agreed that the Russian Navy would continue to operate in Sevastopol, even though it was de jure uh, Ukrainian territory. There was something like the treaty ports in Ireland, to use that analogy again, for the first generation after 1921, there was an Anglo-Irish treaty allowing the British Navy to continue using its essential ports from the top to the bottom of Ireland in what was technically the Irish Free State. So there were always, on top of the local ethnic Russians, uh, there were you know tens of thousands of Russian naval servicemen and their families living in Sevastopol and elsewhere in Crimea. And this all ticked along fairly tolerably until, well, the first shock was the 2004 color, color revolution, the Orange Revolution, where Yushchenko uh, came to office and was, you know, uh, basically copying Mikhail Saakashvili in Georgia of the previous year, away with Russian uh, dominance in the region, we want to be just like Europe, and uh, making a show of an anti-corruption drive, uh, drive, but quickly, you know, proving to be pretty corrupt. Ten years later, you have this Euromaidan coup, which I'm sure you'll be talking about in more detail, but you know, we'll maybe zoom into that later. But the upshot of that was uh, that the population, the Russian speakers in Crimea, whether they were Russian naval families or simply ethnic Russians who'd lived there for, for, uh, for donkey's years, or even the, the Crimean Tatars who were starting to come back as Russian speakers, they were uh, you know, facing, facing new things. Uh, unique in Europe and completely against the Council of Europe um, minimum standards for treatment of national minorities that everyone in geographical Europe has signed up to, such as not uh, forbidding national minorities to speak their own languages. This was all flouted. You know, there, there were celebrated cases like cinemas being told you can't play films in Russian, they have to be dubbed or, or subtitled into Ukrainian. Ridiculous stuff. You know, this was ha happening in the far west as well, where the Hungarian and Romanian and Polish minorities were facing the same problems. Uh, so that was all brewing for a long time. But just as Eva was saying, with the unpeopling of the people of Donbass, uh, which we've seen many examples of in the Middle East as well, uh, this didn't matter. They, they were only Russians, so that their rights were being infringed didn't matter. The Russians have now, as of mid-March, left the Council of Europe, which is older than the EU and founded by largely Winston Churchill's insistence to make sure that you didn't have the makings, the precursor of another Third Reich system, which always starts with unpeopling. Uh, of ethnicities. Uh, but this was all flouted for years. So it's, it stands to reason uh, that come the 2014 revolution, um, where the, the, the stated aim was away with everything that's Russian, why would they want to belong to a, a state like that? And there, there's this footage from the time of uh, the authorities in Crimea saying to Kamara, uh, the masterminds of this revolution, Chatnibok and um, uh, Yatsenyuk and the others who were big at the time are paid CIA assets. They were quite confident in saying this. They wanted, as did as with the, the far east of the country, Donetsk and Lugansk, they wanted nothing to do with this new state. And it is a Russian contention, which is equally valid with any Russian, Western contention, that Crimea went through valid legal measures uh, to hold a referendum to, uh, to, to send itself back to Russia. That, you know, whether there was a Russian invasion of the Crimea in 2014 is, is very much open to question. We're, we're sold this line about little green men appearing uh, who were sympathetic to Russia, but these guys were from the Crimea. They were locals. There, there are more parallels to Northern Ireland than people might be aware of, actually. Yeah, and, and I think that's the most... And actually, one last question before I, we uh, possibly go to Donbass or maybe just go to 2014 in general and, and include that afterward, but would you argue that the previous discussion you had about Crimea before the 2014 or post-2014 and then after that were both driven by Western influence and their policy and their potential agendas, or was that hmm. later? Like, yes, yeah. It's, it, I'll be you know, accused of being simplistic for saying it, but of course they were, hmm. uh, because it's, it's now out in the open 
I mean, anyone who's been following any of us recently will will know that uh, the big the, the, the talking points that have come to the fore are about the grand chessboard written by Zbigniew Brzezinski right. half a century ago, and that itself is is riffing on uh, a late nineteenth century uh, British geopolitical dream for dominating the world by denying Russia uh, access to the Ukraine. Right, but this right. this heartland theory, which people can research easily now, uh, many many commentators have gone into detail on it. I'm afraid, no, nutty as it is, it is what the planners believed in in London and Washington. And you know, I I sat. It's now 20 years since I first was sitting in meetings between CIA and British intelligence, and they were spectacularly interested in Ukraine then, and they were very interested in economic bean counting because, you now in, in hindsight, I think what they were driving at was uh, how much of this bulk would Russia needs to be denied in order to, in their rather simplistic calculations, not to be a, a world power anymore. If we can pull this away from Russia, uh, this this mass of minerals and manpower and knowledge uh, and geographical centrality in the world, uh, will how will that leave Russia literally and figuratively out in the cold? Yeah, so right. that, that and the other thing they were doing twenty years ago was already gathering extremely minute intelligence on the handful of Russian oligarchs, mainly metal and mining magnates from the south and east, so often from the Russian speaking part of the country. Uh, now I think, in hindsight, again, this was to hold them by the short ones, uh, so that in time they could all be persuaded, as they all have one by one. All these owners of the six TV channels and you know, the, the same half dozen oligarchs who run everything, right. all one by one, they were all persuaded to to repudiate their natural affiliation with the, the Russian speaking. World and come over to the dark side. Hmm. Very insightful. I, it's just incredible to see how much this this goes into. But let, let's step into 2014 in general. Uh, whoever wants to take that that point and just discuss how how this ultimately was influenced the same way we were discussing this and the history around it and 2014, or rather, I shouldn't even set that up like that. Give me your perspectives on what 2014 really was. The the regime changes I see it that took place and whether this was more rooted in what the people of Ukraine wanted or whether this was... It would be interesting, would interesting to hear Vanessa on this because it came three years after uh, what what was sold in Western capitals as a, a quick operation in Syria to do the same thing and that failed. Right. So, right. you know, Vanessa by 2014 was already clued into this and, and I think was already watching Crimea to some extent. Right. And let's talk about that and the, the Maidan Square and everything around that. So what, what are your thoughts? Mm, well, I think... Um, there's a few things that I want to pick up. I mean, in, in my view, of course, this was um, a U.S. masterminded, U.K. masterminded, of course. I can never separate the two, and I, I consider the U.K., I think Alex will agree with me, to be the brain of these operations. 100%. And very much the brawn, as happened in Syria. Um, of course, the interesting thing, who did they overthrow, effectively, with this... Um, very bloody, very violent coup was uh, Yekunovich, who at the time was pivoting very much towards Russia, had effectively refused um, the the kind of um, the, the poison chalice of the IMF, which of course is is the first thing to to anger the West. One, the pivot towards Russia, and secondly, this refusal to effectively collaborate with the IMF. And of course, as soon as uh, Yakunovich was removed, the IMF moved in, um, the country was put into billions of debt, um, the soft power complex started to move in, NED is, is effectively a uh, national endowment for democracy, is effectively embedded now in Ukraine, as is Comonics, as is USAID, as are all, as is UK aid, of course, also. 
Um, Chatham House is involved. It has its own uh, Ukraine uh, kind of uh, operations room, let's say, or forum. Um, the Wilson Center. We we started to see all of 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 the predator complex start to move into Ukraine after the 2014 uh, coup. And of course, in um, Odessa, we saw the dreadful massacre um, of those that tried to take shelter in the. Was it the um, which building was it, Alex? Sorry, my mind's just. It gone. was the trade union building That's in right, Odessa. Yeah. It's horrendous footage. Yeah. Um, and they were effectively burned alive. Um, now, the, you mentioned the rise of, of the Nazi, ultranationalist, fascist elements in Ukraine. Of course, this goes back, if anyone has watched Ukraine on Fire by Oliver Stone, this goes back to post-World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to simplify it. Um, when the US effectively allowed uh, Ukrainian Nazis to escape and sheltered them in Europe, prior to them being re-embedded or, or even remaining inside Ukraine under the protection of the United States. And again, I would assume the UK was well aware of this also. Um, and so, so effectively, when we talk about neo-Nazism, I don't actually agree with this point because these are third, fourth generation Nazis. In other words, it never went away. It's not a renaissance. It's something that was consistently there mm. and that was allowed then to, to flourish and to uh, embed itself in government institution and military institution post-2014. And what's interesting about the timing, of course, at that point, we were three years into the uh, regime change war against Syria. At the same time, in 2014, um, General Wesley Clark, who, of course, predicted um, the taking down of seven countries, including Syria, um, gave an interview to uh, Salon in which he talked about uh, the new Republican view, which was effectively they needed to get rid of how they described it, all the Soviet Union surrogate states in the Middle East. So clearly this uh, attempt to decouple Syria from Russia um, was well on its way by 2014 when the coup in um, Ukraine happened. So these two, this timing is very important because by this point, they, they didn't realize that Russia would intervene. And Russia intervened very soon after this. So the timing is important. I think Russia saw the threat regarding what was happening in Ukraine. They also must have known through history that that the plan was to um, attack Russian power and emergence as a global power in the Middle East. So the attacks on the Middle Eastern states, I mean, I'll ask Alex again if he agrees with this, um, were very important to the destruction of Russia, which is described by Brzezinski, the balkanization of Russia, um, the destruction of any collaboration between the EU and particularly Germany and Russia. Um, but this this destroying of the, the, the Middle Eastern states that had some kind of alliance, and, and Syria, of course, was probably uh, the strongest ally of Russia in the Middle East. Um, and then in 2015, of course, Russia intervened in September 2015. So 
after the 2014 coup in Ukraine, Russia decided to come to the aid of Syria. Um, and, and effectively, Syria kind of propelled Russia to the global stage. It gave it the ability um, to become seen as a military, a very effective military power, a very effective diplomatic power, a very effective and honest broker in international affairs, in total contrast to the United States and to the UK, to the entire US coalition, right? So effectively, this window of opportunity that Wesley Clark had been talking about, when they could prevent another nation, Russia, becoming a superpower that would be strong enough to threaten U.S. unipolarity, they had missed that opportunity, Mm. right? Because Russia preceded it by coming into Syria, by um, developing its own reputation globally. And then, of course, in my view, we then had the build-up to what was effectively going to be the blockade of Russia's western flank by NATO military proxies. And that's what led us um, to today. Sorry, I don't know if I've kind of deviated a bit from the original question. I'm actually glad. It's funny you say that because I'd like to actually pivot since you brought it up into Mm -hmm. the discussion about the, the the conversation around Whitney's uh, great article here that you guys mm-hmm. might have seen, Ukraine and the new Al-Qaeda. Now, I was going to talk about this later, but I think there's an interesting parallel right here about whether you might think that the reason that, that was done, why, why Russia may have pushed into Syria, was because they saw something that I believe is a larger scale effort here, whether we're talking about building mm-hmm. extremism in Syria, building extremism in Ukraine. And we and I do want to get into what you brought up, Alex, in regard to, you know, really like 1948 forward in regard to what they were doing in Ukraine. But what do you think, Vanessa? Do you think, or even for that matter, do you guys think that there's an overlap here that why that was done was because they may have seen the larger chess moves that were happening and what they were doing with these extremist groups? Or what are your thoughts on that? Um, oh. Certainly. Sorry, Eva, if you want to go. No, I was going to say continue your, your uh, you've been researching this. Um, Well, for sure, I think um, Russia for some time has seen the writing on the wall. And actually, I had a conversation um, with a a relatively senior negotiator, Russian negotiator inside Syria. So he's been um, collaborating with the Syrian government on the new constitution, etc., etc. And he... Because I actually said to him, you know, and this is my constant question to everyone, why now? Why did Russia choose now to go in? Mm -hmm. And his answer was interesting. He said, even in Russia, um, senior um, diplomats, senior uh, politicians were surprised at the speed and aggressivity of the the Russian operation. Um, But he said, frankly, he said, if it doesn't happen now, it will happen at some point. So at some point, we're going to have to go through this procedure. We're going to have to push back against um, what has been building in Ukraine and what is what NATO has been building in Ukraine. And, you know, Whitney's absolutely right in the sense that what are they doing now? In Syria, they built um, the terrorist complex, if you like, that has been blowing back into, into Europe and creating issues there. Now we are having the Nazi, the the fascist blowback. I mean, I'm having reports from Moldova of um, refugees attacking cafes if they're speaking Russian, for example. 
um, a friend of a friend went to actually help the refugees. He speaks Russian and they beat him up purely for speaking Russian. So this is the kind of blowback that we're seeing now. And, and Alex actually mentioned today on UK Column, the same kind of um, ethnic cleansing programs that we saw in Syria have been repeated in Ukraine and have actually not been reported until now because Russia is on the ground. A lot of things are being exposed, like, for example, the detention center in Mariupol. Um, speaking to Diliana Gaitancheva, the Bulgarian journalist the other day, she told me of Bulgarian nationals living in Ukraine, so I presume with Ukrainian residency, who refused to take up arms against Donetsk and Lugansk and who have been detained and tortured, imprisoned, executed. She told me of a pregnant woman, eight months pregnant, um, hung until almost dead and then burned alive. We're seeing now uh, repercussions or, or retaliation against the, um, as Alex said, the, the um, Russian Orthodox uh, Church. And of course, that transposes to, to Syria with the Christian Orthodox, the Syrian Christian Orthodox, right. which are, are connected to, to Russia, not to Greece. Um, they have also come under um, serious threat of extinction inside Syria. So, of course, there is this connection on, on multiple levels between Russia and Syria. And so we've, what is now coming to light is the extent since 2014 of the ethnic cleansing, the racism, um, and, and the, you know, that we've seen videos now of, of attacks on um, the Romani gypsies, mm. right? So, you know, this kind of, this level of um, fanaticism, we've already seen it in Syria. It's just, it's just got a different brand. Right. <laughs> it's right. just Nazism as opposed to um, Islamism, right, or, or, or Takfiri. Um, it, and, but it's creating the same effect and it will have the same blowback in Europe. And the frightening thing for, for me is, okay, Syria is a few more borders away from Europe. Um, Ukraine is in the center of Europe. So these extremists are going to be able to travel very easily into Central Europe, into the UK, poten potentially even into the US. And they, they are, uh, as I said, they're not neo-Nazis. These are generations of Nazis. And we're seeing videos now of, of training in Nazism in the schools, even right. from kindergarten. Mm -hmm. right. And this has been going on for eight years, yeah. right? So I was right. in Odessa last last autumn, and a lady who was, you know, in my own profession, uh, actually, of interpreting and very elite, she was at the Frumze Academy, so she, she interpreted for their, their general staff abroad, you know. She's in retirement now in Odessa. She would consider herself Russian, but, you know, she's a Ukrainian citizen. And she said, do you know, I, I go into the schools, then I ask the 14-year-olds what happened in the Second World War. Who were, the, who were the enemies in the Second World War? And the kids tell me, and these, these are the bright ones, right, at the, the equivalent of uh, grammar school. Yeah? Uh, the, the good Americans were fighting the evil Russians in the Second World War. In Odessa, you know, where millions of people died in, in and around that city in the Second World War. 
It's just, it, it's so in, in, this is kind of, this is exactly why things like this are so incredibly important because th- th- it's amazing to me the, the level of, of misinformation, of lack of understanding of really basic and verifiable things throughout history. And, and it's, it's, I think becoming more apparent to most people that it's not just something that's been happening for the last 10 years or the last 20 years. Right. It's, it's been what, what is new though, Ryan, I think, and I, I've come to this conclusion only this week is that even the intelligentsia or the cultivated people you speak to in all of the countries bordering Russia on its western and southern flank. And this is specifically a British attack. The Brits are definitely in the lead here with uh, uh, outlets like BBC Media Action, BBC Monitoring. Uh, They have got, they have nativized the message and trained the journalists now for half a generation. And that's long enough when you, you know, you consider the school kids and the the people in their 20s running things in ministries already in these countries. Um, That's long enough for them to believe this stuff. You speak to gentle, civilized people, you know, often very, very committed religious people or just very, very philosophical and calm. And the, the dialogue coming out of them is worse than anything that they had in their, their previous history. You know, Russians must be erased from the face of the earth. We will never have peace with Russia. Do you know our heroic troops, uh, you know, uh, s- killed so many Russians today? Our heroic babushkas lock Rus- starving Russians in, in sheds and set it alight and burn them alive. Where is this stuff coming from? That they don't have any history of this, in the let alone to the Russians who are their co-religionists and, and ethnic brothers and everything else for many Ukrainians. So we have managed to nativize this. Mm-hmm. So, so the, 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 the feedback loop is actually internal to Ukraine, and I fear also Georgia and to some extent Estonia now that their own intelligentsia, uh, you know, ha- have this attitude that that right-thinking people never say a good thing about Russia. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely unreal. I mean, because as Eva brought up right in the beginning, right, it's about dehumanizing the people that this is being conducted against. These are the same entities simultaneously screaming about equity and fighting racism. And it's just it's embarrassing and hypocritical. But going into the, you know, where this leads to in general, like I'd like to go back to and at that point about Syria and the crossover with Ukraine, there's already been multiple reports of members of ISIS or specifically Hayatir al-Sham being brought over to fight. And even Zelensky speaks on the record about 16,000 foreign fighters. Of course, they argue these are people coming from Western countries and so on, but it's, it's, there's plenty more of that happening. So I'd like to talk about the extremist nature of specifically what was built in Ukraine. And why don't we go ahead and start with the Kolomoisky part, uh, Kolomoisky part of this. And I was just talking about this, so my audience is very primed for this in regard to the CIA documentation that, that openly discusses this, which, by the way, makes me a little bit skeptical about why this would be easily posted right on their website. But So you can give me thoughts on that. But this is a document from 1966 discussing Project Aerodynamic, and, and it goes into what this was ultimately building specifically fascist. I mean, it literally goes into the idea of Mr. McCola uh, Lebed, who, who mm-hmm. on the record by, is, is a, an individual who was arrested and put and actually sentenced to death for, for killing a minister of the interior in Poland and was an, as a Nazi war criminal, right? So, and this is the group that they used. So basically I wanted your thoughts maybe just on this documentation in general, that going, the idea being they were building and cultivating fascism all the way back then, 1948 forward. Well, Go ahead. There's an even older CIA document that's relevant. I can't remember the the, the the reference off the top of my head. I think the year is 54, give or take. So more or less the same time that Khrushchev, maybe he was induced, but anyway, he, he gave Crimea to Ukraine. Mm. And about that time, there's um, there's a CIA uh, report on the, the nations, the nationalities within the 
Soviet Union as it then was. It focuses on the, the, the big Muslim nationality within Russia proper, known as the Tatars, uh, who have branches, of course, in, in Ukraine, the Crimean Tatars. And if you want to compress that to a nutshell, it is that the pre-war strategy, as Ivan Maisky, the Soviet ambassador in London in the 30s, makes very clear in his diary, the pre-war strategy was use the, uh, the fascist tripartite alliance uh, to get the Soviet Union out of the way. You know, it, it's a bit more complex than that because the city of London and Manhattan had huge investments in in the Soviet Union as it had in the Tsarist Empire and wanted to develop it, but just didn't want it to be to to go off the reservation and play its own game. After the Second World War, Stalin flipped the the, the script really. So the new strategy from about 1950, when the West thought it, it really had control of Eastern Europe and and things were formalised in Germany. Uh, the new strategy was, uh, just as the Soviets had a long-term strategy and went into a new phase in the 50s too, a cultural warfare strategy, so the West did. And it thought, right, from now on, we need to be um, playing up the ethnic divisions. And now, some of this is, is, is really rooted in the area. For example, the Estonians and Latvians uh, both had, because they weren't legally incorporated into the Soviet Union in their own understanding, so they had holdout groups that thought they had the, the, the law and morality on their side in holding out against the Soviets after the Second World War. They called themselves the Forest Brethren. And some of these guys held out in the woods until the 1970s when the last few were, were rounded up. Uh, likewise, in Armenia, it was more urban there, but there was a guerrilla movement against Soviet power uh, that had people uh, you know, arrested and, and executed for blowing up the Yerevan metro in the 70s, or the Moscow metro, I think it was. Right, so at the biggest of these by far was this Western Ukrainian lot. I'm sorry to go back into history, but the Western third or so of what's now Ukraine on the map uh, was Polish for a very, very long time in its history. And part of it is still, although ethnic Ukrainian, it's Roman Catholic and therefore looks for looks West in, in many other ways. Much like the sw split between the Croats and Serbs, you're not going to get them singing from the same hymn sheet again, pardon the pun, because of that, this deep division. Now, so that, that's, that was exploited. There were many critical junctures in Ukrainian history where the far West went a different way and thought of itself as more Austro-Hungarian or Polish than, than anything to do with the Slavs. So there's been a deep um, well, a, a deep a wellspring of resentment in that part of the world towards anyone who even speaks the Russian language, who gets derided as a Moscow you know, as a scummy Muscovite. And people, you know, if, if you've been involved with the region, for example, through church missions or any kind of diplomacy, you will know that, you know, something which never, ever happens anywhere else in the former Soviet world uh, does happen a lot there and has happened for a long time. But if even if you're an obvious foreigner, such as a, a brown skinned Middle Eastern person speaking Russian, to, because it's the only common language you have with these guys, they will set about you and beat you up. This has happened for a long, long time. Right. And this goes back to the post-war period. Let one of the ladies pick up from there, I think, so I don't dominate. But basically, the, the idea was uh, to exploit this. Uh, you, you showed it briefly on screen. There's this organization of uh, Ukrainian nationalists, right. which, you know, split. There were so many twists and turns in the Second World War. One of the one of them was the split between the larger faction under Melnik and the smaller extreme faction under Bandera, who massacred everyone who wasn't Ukrainian. In Western Ukraine, or you know, which was on on you know de jure Eastern Poland at that time, so they would massacre Poles, they would massacre Russians, they would massacre Jews. Um, they weren't even nice to Germans at times. And Bandera and actually ended up in you know he was in a concentration camp among uh, under the Nazis, uh, and then he he ended up being assassinated by the KGB in Germany after the war. But this split of a split of a split you know, this Judean People's Front type arrangement uh, held out. And it had analogies in other Soviet republics, but it was by far the biggest. And it had this groundswell of people who kept alive this myth of, you know, Ukraine has never been anything to do with Russia. Uh, they were pretty much 
have preferred to switch from Cyrillic to Latin script. That's how extreme they they are. And uh, you know, it struck me when I visited New York and Toronto in the early two thousands that the big Ukrainian um, communities there had this as their lifeblood. This was their national myth. You know that uh, that Ukraine is a is a Central European country. Uh, has nothing at all to do with Russia historically, even though you know that historically they they have plenty to do with each other. So that was the the pool in which the CIA fished and kept this dream alive, largely and in a more peaceful sense. This is also true of the Estonians and Latvians That's and to some really... extent the Caucasians. Largely, it kept them alive in North America, right? This and many of these former Soviet countries, as soon as 1991 and the, and the change happened, they they parachuted in fistfuls of these uh, emigre families from the US and Canada to be the new ministers running the country, which was most disastrous in the case of the Ukraine, because they had this completely nutty ideology that if you, you know, the only good Russian is a dead Russian. Mm -hmm. the, the, a really important point there is is how interesting it is to me, like you pointed out, that this was sort of plucked out of obscurity to a degree. Like this is a group that was, as they even list in their document, the documentation of the CIA document that they discuss. Mm -hmm that this was something that wasn't really present, that they chose uh, Lebed specifically because he was a fascist, not just nationalist. Mm. That's important distinction as well. Nationalist inherently does not, is not, doesn't have to be a negative thing, but once no. it becomes extremist, once it becomes fascist, and that's something in the, in the U.S. particularly that they manipulate today, they actually chose a Nazi war criminal, somebody who was put on death row because he tried to assassinate them. And interestingly enough, the CIA built this prologue company in New York, which is against the law, by the way, the CIA shouldn't be doing that, and let them run this. So I think it's really interesting to see that continuity to where they were cultivating fascism all the way back then and sort of to jump to today. And whoever, uh, Vanessa, Eva, you want to jump in on in regard to uh, specifically, not I mean, not just the Azov Battalion, but how we can see this clear line to today where they're still funding and that's where I bring in the Kolomoisky point, the primary funder backer of Zelensky, who's also a lead funder of Azov Battalion, brings in this fascist militia from 2014-15 forward and has been throwing them against the Soviet Union, just like they did with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. It's kind of the same narrative, right? So what are your thoughts on specifically Azov and how, how you know, completely immersed is this in their military and so on? And what are your thoughts on that? I'm going to let you take that, Vanessa, but I will just say a couple of things. Um, uh, when I was in uh, the Donbass in uh, 2019, um, the media guy I was with, Dimitri, um, he, he basically was saying like he was raised believing in values of democracy and freedom and all that. And he's like, you know, what do people in the West think about the fact that, you know, uh, in Ukraine, they're literally worshipping, they, they are Nazis, and they're literally worshipping this uh, Bandera. And I said, well, just, you know, people don't know. Uh, because the way our media works, people don't know. So um, I think like the other thing I would just mention, it's, it's obvious to all of us, but, you know, it's just, it's a huge affront uh, to our um, sense of conscience and morality that people will just uh, blindly put their profile photos as, you know, the Ukrainian flag and they'll hashtag, I stand with Ukraine. And I, I'm sure a lot of people are well-meaning, just like they did, uh, Vanessa, with, you know, save Aleppo, save Idlib, all that stuff, not knowing, because they're really not really paying attention, not knowing that what they're standing with are people that are all the things all of you have said, like they're dehumanizing, they're uh, exterminating uh, populations. And uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's it's quite uh, alarming, but not surprising, you know, that this is the trend that continues with every, you know, different case, whether it's Syria or Ukraine. Uh, there was something else I was going to say. Oh, I know. Um, it was uh, just the point that, you know, I think a lot of us get this like, well, 
um, how can Ukraine be a Nazi state if its president is Jewish? And also like, well, there, how many, you know, how many of these Nazis are there? How can they be so powerful? But um, both, uh, I think it was Andrei Martyanov, who I spoke with not long ago, a military, a Russian military expert, and also more recently, uh, Gonzalo Lira, who's living in Kharkov, Ukraine, was making the point, um, certainly Gonzalo, and I think Andrei made the point, but I'm sure he, if not to me, he would have definitely in, in general, it, it doesn't need to be every single person and, you know, in the Ukrainian forces that are Nazis, that they just wield such, such an extreme amount of power, including within the government. That, that that's sufficient, right? Yeah. So that point that people are making, like, it's just like, kind of like when you talk about 9-11, well, how could that possibly have happened? Everyone would have had to have been in on it. Well, no, actually, right. it doesn't have to be everybody. Right, absolutely. And I, I, we, I do want to come back next after this and get into what these groups have been doing over the last eight years and before in Donbass. But before we get to that, uh, Vanessa, if you'd like to talk on, on specifically that, that topic again, you know, 2014 forward, Azov Battalion and, and the U.S. involvement and so on. Oop, I think you're muted, Vanessa. My dog was having a sneezing fit in case you heard it. I know I better, I better mute myself. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, Kolomoisky is, is, a, is a kind of um, a, a, a multi... Um, uh, multi fingers in every pie, as far as I can work out. You know, an extraordinary, uh, influential guy in Ukraine, and um, yes, you know, he he funded. Um, I think it was the um, TV um, channel that, that promoted Zelensky, etc. One plus and then one. He funded, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he funded his um, campaign. Um, he's also behind Barisma Holdings, of course, which is the mm. whole Hunter Biden. If you guys uh, want to get into that, we can talk about that as well, because that's obviously really important. I, I think yeah. the Americans have done that more magnificently than we ever will be able to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, just just coming back, what what I find kind of fascinating about Kolomoisky, and it'd be interesting to see um, if Alex has any commentary on this. Mm. Kolomoisky is also among all the things that you've talked about. I mean, there has been a video released of him talking about, because if we look at what led up to, um, I don't see it as Russia's war in Ukraine. I see it as NATO's war against Russia and Russia literally defending itself against a very real threat to its national security. Okay. Um, But if we look up, look at to the lead up, to this war of course what did we have in the uk and bearing in mind in my view the uk is at the forefront of leading this demonization campaign against putin against the the entire russian nation against russian speakers um in ukraine in donetsk lugansk in odessa in in crimea etc um but we had the skripal case of course and, and we then had in europe the mh17 now kolomoisky has been recorded on video describing the MH17 crash as a trifle. So, you know, this this has to be, um, you, you then have to start thinking to what degree was he involved. And of course, there is a great deal of uh, controversy. I'm not very well versed in all of it around MH17. I think um, a Dutch journalist, Eric van den Beek, has probably done the most um, extensive and investigative work into that. Um, so Kolomoisky is is kind of everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, 
leading um, the campaign to foment anti-Russia sentiment in Ukraine. And of course, who else is behind this? Israel and the, the, the Israeli lobby, the Zionists and so on. Remembering that Odessa was known as the Gate of Zion. I think five presidents, um, Zionist presidents, uh, had their origins in Ukraine, including Golda Meir. Uh, a number of IOF, uh, Israeli Offense Forces, um, commanders also um, came from Ukraine. Um, so, you know, this, this is a big connection. I mean, Professor mm-hmm. David Miller will describe Ukraine as a de facto Zionist state, and he's, again, mm-hmm. far more informed on this than I am. But Kolomoisky um, founded uh, in 2011, so just before the regime change war against Syria, he founded the, European, the Jewish European Parliament mm-hmm. um, to further expand Israeli interests inside Europe, right? And he is also deeply connected to the Chabot Lubavitch movement, which mm-hmm. has its uh, foundations, I believe, Alex, in Ukraine. Yes, yeah, from the pale, yeah. Yeah, and and Chabot Lubavitch is a very extremist, almost more extreme, I believe, Alex, than than the Zionist movement, if that's possible. I, I would say so. They, 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 you know, just as the Zionists as a, as a whole are sometimes accused of holding the rest of the world in contempt, so it could be said of Chabot Lubavitch that they hold even fellow Orthodox Jews in contempt. Right. You know, if, they, if they're not with them, then they're disposable. So, so Kolomoisky is, you know, when you talk about well, how can Zelensky be connected to to the Azov battalions? He's Jewish, etc. But this collaboration between Israel, I mean, Israel has been supplying weapons to the Azov battalions. Israel has had um, a very long collaboration with Ukrainian military and intelligence for the purpose of fermenting this anti-Russian sentiment in Ukraine. So, So Kolomoisky is really, you know, I, I, I don't want to give him too much importance, but the people that he is probably working with, the people where he, within, or the circles within which he has influence, he is pivotal to what has been going on in Ukraine, I believe, um, both with the connection with Hunter Biden, the connection with mm-hmm. the putting of Zelensky in place, um, the funding of the Azov Battalion, and as I said, Israel is providing arms, of course, Britain is also training that the various uh, Nazi battalions. The U.S. is training them. You know, this we're not saying anything different to Syria. As I said, it's just another brand of terrorism, effectively. All right. And what's interesting to note as well is that Kolomoisky has dual Israeli, technically triple. He's got Israeli, Cyprus, and and uh, mm-hmm. and Ukrainian citizenship, which is technically against the law. Which is kind of he argues that having three of them somehow changes that, but it's still against the law. But it, what's interesting is he lives in Tel Aviv. His son's name is Israel, for crying out loud. I find it interesting that there's a lot of these connections to that. And as you pointed out, this is from 2018. Even Israeli people are saying, "Look, stop arming these people." And what, I have a question for all of you, and you want your thoughts on this? To we we've seen it sort of exposed, a short deviation in regard to let's say the extremists in Syria, and I, even uh, Saudi Arabia sort of let it out a little bit that in some ways these people are not necessarily all these extremist religious mentality that some of the people at the top are manipulating those that are of that mindset. Now, I don't know if you guys agree with that, but would yes. you argue that's similar to what we're seeing over here where 
they, obviously there are there are literal Nazis, there are neo Nazis, there are people that are just extremist white supremacists. You know, there it's but largely what you guys were pointing out. But would you argue that there are some of them? Like and, and explain why maybe these funds are coming from Israel or why they're bringing extremists from Syria into this group that aren't really of the mind that it's a religious thing or a race thing. It's more about using that as a means to an end. And that's why it's being manipulated from the outside. Yeah, I think that that is a fair summary and it does have parallels um, in the run up to the 2008 South Ossetia war between Russia and Georgia, which was on a completely different scale, you know, much smaller than this, but tragic and horrific in its way. You saw the uh, secular Zionist takeover of Georgia using, as in Ukraine, the deep rooted Jewish community there and elements of it. Uh, the defense minister at the time himself, not Jewish, uh, Okruashvili, um, although his predecessor, David Kazarashvili, is a Georgian Jew, but Okruashvili was the defense minister at the time the war broke out. Uh, footage has been uh, shared last week of allegedly him and his voice, which I often heard in my intelligence days, does match to my, my recollection. He's behind the camera with the Georgian Foreign Legion in Ukraine saying, now, guys, whom would you rather kill, 10 Russians or one Ossetian? And they say one Ossetian. Uh, sorry, other way around. One Russian, yeah, one Ossetian would be more than ten, ten Russians. So, what's going on there? The, 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 there's no Jewish bad blood with the Ossetians. It's, it's you know, there's very few ways to uh, to accept such a thing. Other than that, these entire people groups are in the way of some project. And I know uh, we don't want to go down the Khazarian mafia and new New Jerusalem rabbit hole if, unless we absolutely have to. And I've I've long been, you know, as a, as a specialist in the region, skeptical of it. But I'm, I'm increasingly having to accept reluctantly that there is a small minority of super oligarchic. Uh, inhuman persons who really do believe this mm. and they, they you know to, to pick up on your point Ryan I don't think they're committed to any form of Judaism that I recognize and I have a pre pretty good deep rounded knowledge of Judaism historically I teach biblical Hebrew and various other things but no I, I, there are a few there as as was the case in the second world war if we're, if we're frank right you know uh, some, some kinds of secular Zionists who would be only too glad to hitch themselves to the wagon of whoever the dominant power is in a in a part of Eurasia at the time yeah, well, there's plenty of examples of this. I mean, this is just coming from the U.S. perspective, but of the CIA and the United States collaborating with the Nazis during that period of time. You know, it, it's it's interesting. I think I, this is just more that I hope people will dive into to understand. And this is in no way to suggest that there's not some part of it. But the idea being that these people, as you pointed out, it's more about their agenda and the extremist nature of it in which they will throw anybody under the bus to achieve it. You know, and this yeah. is what we're beginning to really see throughout this process. Now, br bringing this back to, to uh, Donbass in general, the Donetsk and Luhansk and what they've been dealing with in this process is a part that, as I know specifically, you Eve, are really upset about, that people are acting like this wasn't happening in the beginning, that it was a, a conspiracy theory that led into all of this. These people have been grossly suffering at the hands of the Ukrainian government for eight years and, and before. And to your point from earlier, the 14,000 number that gets discussed, I mean, that's on Wikipedia as the Ukrainian government citing they've killed that many people in Donbass. So let's be clear wow. that even if they're lying about that, at least that's what Wikipedia says, which we all know what that really means today. But the, the idea meaning that it's being listed on Wikipedia as them, that that's what they're stating. And yet they then dispute it. It shows you either they're willing to lie about it because they are proud about it. Or, I mean, I don't know how you really take that, but why don't you dive into people that dive into this topic for people that don't know the background here and let us know what these people have been doing in Donbass. Um, I mean, I, I can't actually pinpoint the date they started shelling, but for effectively for the last eight years, they have been shelling um, not only the perimeter areas of the Donbass regions, but also like, uh, again, Donetsk. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure about the extent of within Lugansk, um, but uh, Gorlevka, north of uh, Donetsk. And um, 
with the Minsk Accords, like, again, I don't have a, a fine understanding of them, but basically they've been violating the Accords in that they, they should not be using certain, like, prohibited heavy weapons, and they have mm. been doing so. Um, the attack on Donetsk uh, two weeks ago, and I don't know, Vanessa or Alex could maybe speak to, like, uh, the more military nature of it, but basically it was a, a weapon that was loaded with, uh, I believe, with cluster munitions. It was shot down by... Uh, uh, either El, um, Donetsk air defense, I think it was, but one one of these clusters did um, detonate and it killed 21 people and caused varying degrees of injuries to 37 others. Um, but even prior to that, like uh, when I went to Gorlovka, um, a local guy took me around and he was telling me what was known as Bloody Sunday, which I think was a day in, I want to say 2014, when basically Ukraine rained hell down on that city. And like many tragic stories for that city alone, the areas I went to were um, north, around north of Gorlovka. They were around 500, 600 meters from where the Ukrainian forces were. And one woman in the village of Zaitsev, well, she was like the the village head, I forget her particular title. She was d- describing Ukraine as basically going street by street, house by house, street by street, and, and taking houses out. And mainly and, at uh, night, wasn't it, Eva, so that the, ins- the weapons inspectors wouldn't see it? Yeah, that OSCE, the Organization for Security, blah, 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 uh, were supposed to be there to observe, you know, if either side was violating the ceasefire. Mm-hmm. And uh, this this woman, uh, Irina of Zaitsevo, and basically locals as well, were saying, yeah, well, once the OSCE observers leave it dark, that's when it really gets hot here. And they're, they're using... This, again, variety- this is exactly, exactly what happened in the final week of provocations leading up to the South Ossetia-Georgia war. The OSCE guys were on the border... They were, you know, reliable, fairly non-aligned people from countries like Hungary. But being, you know, international types, they clocked off at dusk, as you say, and then the fun and games started. You know, and I just remember back in 2007 when I first went to the West Bank and I spent like I ended up spending eight months there, um, you know, as an, an activist with the ISM observing Israel's various crimes against Palestinians. I spent maybe two weeks in Hebron or Halil. And uh, I remember, I can't remember what the name of that body was. I think it was a UN mandated body, but it's the same kind of principle. They were there to observe whether or not Israel was, you know, holding Palestinians up the checkpoints or doing far worse, which they do. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, just albeit two weeks in Hebron, but anytime some, some serious incident started up, the, those observers just walked away. So I don't know, that's just an aside. But basically what, what the locals were telling me was that, you know, like, Oh, most of the people I met were elderly. They had nowhere to go. I mean, I would ask them some pretty obvious or dumb questions like, why are you staying here? Why don't you leave? And the answer was they had nowhere to go. And most of the houses I saw were in some state of like great or uh, minor or great disrepair um, from, again, from the shelling, from also heavy machine gun firing. Uh, one of the villages I visited, Krutaya Balka, it was like uh, split in two because the front area was more exposed to Ukrainian sniper fire. There's this one guy who was walking down the road. And I, I felt like uh, I was discussing this with a Telesur guy when we were in Donbass uh, last week. You know, I felt kind of ashamed to be wearing for the first time in my life ever a flak jacket and a helmet because here's this guy walking down the road in his plaid shirt you know walking along a sniper a sniper lane excuse me to his house and when I asked him why he stayed he's like well I didn't think the war would go on so long you know and now it's just like I don't want to leave my house and that that was another thing I heard from people I don't want to leave our house because if it's fired upon there's a chance at least we could put the fire out but if we're not home we can't do that right 
So, I mean, like these are like these are human stories that Vanessa and I have collected quite a lot in Syria that I've seen a lot of in Gaza, you know, like the kind of things that the people in these frontline villages are enduring. It's it's very much the same in Gaza and it's just not reported on uh, the same in that, like these are a daily occurrence, but they're not important to the West or the Western media. These lives don't matter, you know. Um and uh, what else? Um, well, I mean, yeah, it's just been it's just been incessant t- terrorizing of these people and disappearing of their stories, you know. And, uh, right. and now 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 when everybody started up with their like uh, uh, I stand with Ukraine, it's like people think again, they're saying Russian invasion. Why would Russia do this? You know, and and it's like the last eight heroes don't exist. Then the other thing I think uh all of you can speak to is the the Russians diplomacy over the last eight years. Like mm-hmm. people are framing it as well. Russia just like wants to expand and take territory and I don't know what else. Uh, but, but, you know, they have tried over and over again to get Ukraine to adhere to the, the, the peace agreements and, uh, you know, to no avail and to get NATO to stop expanding to no avail. And, th- and this yet- is where the Nazis come in because they are the ones literally and figuratively holding the, the trigger. Uh, you yeah. know, holding the gun to the nape of the neck of the politicians. And we've had this through two presidents now, Poroshenko and um, Zelensky, since 2014. Even though they may only be 10,000 10, men under arms, they're the guys who say you are going to be assassinated if you implement the Minsk agreement. Right. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a video circulating of, of when... Zelensky actually confronted them on the front line. It's really, yeah. I, think, I think, Ritter... In the village of Zolotoya, which is not far, I think, from Golovka, where uh, Eva was recently. We showed that on UK column recently, of mm. this completely dejected um, uh, President Zelensky just after his election in 2019, confronting this militia leader. And clearly, he'd been left in the dark about the smuggling in of arms uh, to the front line area in Donetsk and Lugansk, and said to this guy, look, I'm, I'm not a loser. I'm the president. I'm, I'm over 40 years old. You know, I'll have you know I have some CV and, and you've just diddled me. You know, get rid of these arms. Right. So, the way he this, responded is just so embarrassing. Like, I'm 41 years old. I'm the president. Yeah. And they're kind of laughing at him. I mean, clearly they see what he really is, you know, and that they yeah. think he's legit. And of course, uh, I, in the spring of that year, Andriy Bilecki, the overall commander of the whole right sector, the whole bunch of these guys, um, famously disdained to do what Kolomoisky had disastrously done in a previous presidential election. He didn't put his candidate forward. Um, Kolomoisky had got 2% if I remember correctly, in some trial round of a previous election. And Bilecki even said it's beneath his dignity. He doesn't need to be to even try to be president. He'll, he'll control the outcome anyway. That's not just idle talk, because, you know, the second most important Nazi commander in Ukraine, Dmitry Yarosh, who's been many things over the years, uh, and he's also, you know, got, got regular positions and medals and advisor roles with the Ukrainian regular Ministry of Defense and regular troops. Yarosh, I really recently found out, was the, shall we say, the, the devil on one shoulder of the Ukrainian uh, intelligence guy at the chief, um, Nalivaychenko, in 2006 to 2010, when on the other shoulder was Chris Steele of MI6. I knew about that because in my latter GCHQ year, Steele was doing nothing else than getting the Ukrainians and the Georgians to do his work for him, right? And of course, that came in later, useful much later, with them forging Russian stuff for for, Ukra- for US purposes, for US domestic consumption. Uh, but I've only recently found out that Yarosh was some senior secondee to the office, to the head of the SBU, the feared Ukrainian Intel- intelligence service, in the years when Valentin Nalivaychenko was turning it into the abduction kings that they are today, you know, who, who abduct and torture as a way of life. Hmm. And when, when you have two devils on your shoulders, I'm sure that's an easy path to take. 
But I think what's interesting here to to, to keep the, the discussion going forward in regard to the, the extremists and the building of that, there's so many avenues we could take this conversation. It, we, we should definitely revisit a lot of these things. But let's, let's discuss the idea of how this is being conducted today and then going into the groups on the ground working alongside these entities. So or like and even an interesting comparison is in regard to how they're continuing to discuss you know, we're not going to deploy people. We're not going to have this battle inside Ukraine, despite that literally being the opposite of what's happening. And when you guys can maybe speak to how they're sort of hiding those deployments behind their volunteer veterans that are seemingly all over the place out there. But give me a discussion of your guys' opinion on things like DynCorp and Blackwater and these contractors being on the ground and what role they may play alongside the other extremists on the ground and maybe discussions of false flags and, and things that are happening there. Give me your thoughts, guys. Um. I, I mean, one thing that I just want to add really quickly to what Eva was just talking about in Donetsk and Lugansk and, and the the absolute um, hypocrisy of, of what is described as international law and, and at the um, ICC, for example. Um, Fatou Bensfudo, who was the previous prosecutor general, has just been replaced by a British um, Queen's Consul barrister, uh, Karim Khan, now, what is really interesting, Fatou Bensouda was actually pursuing an investigation into um, war crimes against the people of Donetsk and Lugansk. Karim Khan has effectively strolled in and, and totally uh, shoved that under the carpet and is now working on criminalizing Russia and bringing Russia to um, prosecution or to account um, for their alleged war crimes. And guess who's being... Um, uh, recruited to to provide the corroborating evidence is of course Bellingcat, Elliot um, <laughs> Higgins. This so is, this is here we have. Dutch focused. Yeah, you know, I mean, there, there are several punctuations of Dutch stuff. You can see the windmill behind me. I'm in the Netherlands, for those who don't know. But, you know, the, the MH17 issue, yeah. the uh, EU-Ukraine agreement that faulted in the Netherlands uh, and various yeah. other things. But this is another one, you know, because uh, right there in The Hague, they have rehoused the, the, the MI6 cutout Bellingcat. Right. Oh, but uh, yeah. And, and, and at the same time as they've done that, well, I mean, the, the Fatou Bensouda was in The Hague at the International Criminal Court as the chief prosecutor. And I and a friend who is a Georgian who moved to The Hague. So we're both local and, dare I say, both <laughs> superbly well qualified to be interpreters between Georgian and English for that court in various ways. We both applied when Fatou Bensouda opened uh, in preliminary investigations into prosecuting Saakashvili and his then authorities for the South Ossetia war. And we were both told that we had failed the and then we found that they hadn't actually taken the prosecution forward. No one was appointed and the case was closed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so this is, but, but, you know, I mean, when we're talking about the crossover and I'm including the, the, the mercenary groups like Blackwater or Academy, as it's now called, mm. um, you've, and DynCorp, et cetera, all of which have been operating inside Syria, of course. Um, but you have Balinkat now, uh, on the ground in, of course, uh, Western Ukraine, one assumes. Um, uh, you have all the suspects from Syria, like Chris York, Oz <laughs> uh, obviously the BBC Channel 4 churning it out just as they did um, in Syria. Um, exactly the same sort of rhetoric, exactly the same. I, I won't even say assumptions because assumptions presumes some kind of innocence, but this isn't any kind of innocent campaign. You know, they know exactly what they're doing. They're cynically misrepresenting 
what's happening on the ground. Um, and uh, a, a number of others, Hamish to Bratton Gordon, who of course was, was central to the chemical, um, although he, he rather destroyed the credibility of the chemical weapons narratives in, in Syria with his famous fridge bomb theory. Mm. Um, but he's there now, uh, just as Abramovich had a, a, an alleged uh, chemical weapon attack against him during the, the negotiations, of course. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a sort of, uh, I don't know, a sort of repeat rinse cycle. Mm. Um, and this is where, you know, I, I do have a theory which I'm working on is that COVID was brought in not only to bring in the measures of the Great Reset, but to prepare us and to brainwash us, to hypnotize us prior to the war against Russia, because I believe this war against Russia was planned well in advance of, of COVID. Um, America denounced two nuclear treaties just before uh, COVID happened in March 2020. The first and UK Column News covered just yesterday that the RAND Corporation, which does the, the, the nasty yeah. thinking for the US military so it can be denied, you know, was mm. saying in 2019 that just what Vanessa said, actually, that, that, what was your very last point? Sorry, just to reinforce that. Oh, about the... Um, no, I mean, the RAND paper was called uh, Overextending and Unbalancing Russia. And of course, it describes um, all of the measures that were taking place, the movement of military closer to Russian borders, the military exercises, um, the, the, the naval exercises, um, the potential nuclear, the biolabs, etc., etc. All of it as, as a kind of overt threat to Russia's national security. And this was going on literally just before COVID popped up and we all got completely swept right. away into focusing on uh, our, you know, the, everything that was happening under the guise of, of COVID. We became very isolationist because we were in lockdown. We became um, very switched off in a way. I mean, everyone kind of forgot to talk about Syria and forgot to talk about Yemen and forgot to talk right. about Palestine because everyone was very focused on the Great Reset and WEF. And, you know, I'm not belittling that. But I'm just saying it worked perfectly as a kind of a brainwashing process for two years. And suddenly, and, and now, in a sense, how I see it, this there is one narrative that's almost saying, you know, oh, yeah, the non-war, you know, the war that is just being staged to, to bring in further right. global reset um, initiatives, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all in it together. Um, and so, in a sense, you've got independent media almost criminalizing Putin as being part of this entire uh, transnational cartel, right? So, I mean, I, I'm simplifying it now and I'm working on, on producing the evidence for this. But for me, it, it, and, I, and I kind of wanted to flip the narrative because everyone was going down this route of, yeah, it's a non-war they, they were literally disappearing the eight years of mm -hmm. genocide that Donetsk and Lugansk had suffered. The ethnic cleansing programs that had been going on in Ukraine and are now intensifying were, were just being sort of the deaths and the torture of the Russian soldiers that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, like two days ago, the, the shooting in the legs and the genitalia of uh, Russian soldiers who were then left to, to bleed to death and now apparently have been discovered their remains have been burned in the area where this war crime and atrocity took place. 
So all of this is happening. You know, the, the, the threat against Russia is very real. The demonization and criminalization of Russia throughout the war in Syria has been very real. The threat to, to Russian national security is very real. And there's also this existential threat, this mm -hmm. threat against everything that conservative Russia stands for. Um, it's, it's moral stance. It's, it's, it's uh, grounding in its religious identity, in its um, ideology, in its culture. When compared to, and Putin gave a speech at Valdai five years ago where he talked about the moral vacuum in the West and how mm. Russia simply didn't believe in this. It still believed in its Christian values because Orthodox Christianity, I think Alex will agree with me, is, is, is what underpins uh, Russian society. And very Absolutely. much, as I said, Orthodox Christian society in Syria also. And these values, this is the existential war, these values are what Russia is defending itself from erosion, which might have happened had, had Ukraine, the Western-influenced Ukraine, moved closer to Russian borders, influenced potentially uh, elements of Russian society. So, you know, this is, it's a war on multiple fronts. And in mm. my view, this war could not have happened as easily as regards the demonization of Russia. And look at, I mean, look at the rhetoric in the West. You know, people people jumped on this bandwagon in a nanosecond. I mean, I was horrified. The white supremacy that came out, the racism, the sectarianism that came out in, in Western society almost overnight. Mm -hmm. But in my view, that, that only happened because, because we'd had that two-year hiatus of COVID. I, I completely agree. It's so interesting about the overlap. Now, I, I, let's we'll come back at the very end to touch more on the whole Great Reset overlap because I really do think there's, that's very interesting. And and to your point there, it, I think it goes both ways. You know, like I 100% see it as because people, I mean, we can call it mass psychosis, formation, or, you know, whatever you want to recognize it as. But the point is people got lost in that where they were, as we're seeing now, blindly taking what they were being told authority said was the, what you're supposed to think or what the science said. And they just kind of towed that line or however people, whether you think they're right or wrong, we saw that, right? They just blindly went along with what they were told. Same thing happening now where it's, it, they just kind of jumped right into the next narrative. Now I do agree that definitely that was part of it, but you could ar ar argue it in reverse as well, that you can see how now this is being used to take away yeah. from what happened before and so on, you know? So it's very, very interesting. I was going to go past this in the interest of time, but let's go back to it since this is an, I'm, one of the parts that I was going to talk about was the lead up to this. And it even mentioned quite a bit of in regard to how there was a lot of misrepresentation, a lot of omission about what was happening before. And it's just, oh, Putin just pushed in for no reason. You know, that's kind of how they started this. So uh, if you'd like to start, Eva, or anybody else wants to jump in on what we were seeing before this, like we talked about, the encroachments on the border, and specifically the RAND document that outlines how they were going to do this, about building up on the borders, about creating these exercises under a guise of nothing to do with Russia, even though it was provocations or flying uh, jets 200 miles off their coast a few months before this started and so on. So whoever wants to jump in. Alex? Yeah, well, we've been covering several aspects of this on UK Column News because we have Brian Gerrish, a retired uh, Navy officer uh, as, at the helm, uh, pardon the pun, but the, the, we, we've seen how uh, we have, as, as NATO, been holding more and more bilateral exercises with countries in the high north um, and also with the Baltic allies, increasingly provocational ones, and at the same time, 
our press has been reporting pretty standard Cold War and post-Cold War Russian flights and uh, sailings in international waters around the British Isles as though they were sabre-rattling. You know, this this has been well uh, well well presented, as it were. There is also the uh, the spectre of now. I know it's it's not the same, exactly the same thing as nuclear weapons. But even using the word nuclear is pretty dumb unless you really want know you know what you're doing and are doing it deliberately. The word nuclear was starting to come out of um, Zelensky's mouth in recent months, and one version of what he was suggesting was that, well, let's take the, the, the softest, the most plausible version, uh, that he was going to invite the US and possibly the Brits to base some kind of nuclear weapons on his territory. Uh, if you spin it a bit more, you're going to plead that what he was saying was that the Ukraine was going to use its Soviet-era know-how, which was considerable. They were a, a huge part of the Soviets' uh, brains and brawn, um, uh, to you know re uh, revamp, to, to revivify the Soviet-era a nuclear weapons program in some way. It probably wouldn't have been achievable. But I think that the one that's least discussed and the one that ties in best with what we were just saying about RAND is that in the mind of Putin and, and controllers in the, the Kremlin, uh, it seems that they, they, they were, I think with perhaps good reason as well, concerned that there was going to be a what, what they would have called a second biological warfare attack on the Russo-Chinese bloc because um, it's it's clear from the early days of covid that Putin, to an extent that other people almost you know, derided him for, took COVID very seriously. He's always been, a bit like Trump, quite a germophobe. And um, there are some interesting parallels, such as their aversion to alcohol as well. But, uh, the, but Putin was quite a germophobe. And he seems to have spent the first half year, although not at federal level, turning Russia into a COVID tyranny. Some of the entities within Russia, the sub-state entities did. But he certainly spent a lot of time... Uh, mulling over whether it had been a deliberate American biological attack on China. And a claim which I think is only going to come to the fore more and more as we get more leaked documents and inconveniently dated reports from the Defence Intelligence Agency from November 2019 about Wuhan and so on. Um, so that that seems to have dominated their thinking. And they are have been a strategic bloc, Russia and China, and to some extent Iran, since the late 2010s. And with the what we know now about the Ukrainian bio labs, uh, no, I think you know any of the viewers will know about this. I think they will have taken the calculation that uh, if they waited even a bit longer, there would have been the launching of some kind of biological agent intended in some way to target even even narrowly ethnic Russians. If we look at Diliana Dikaitanjieva's evidence, and she's not the only one to have brought this out. So that that's probably what pushed the timetable. Because to be fair, and not to be a Putin fanboy about this, there is now a bulk of evidence that. There has been, well, I wouldn't use the Western media word indiscriminate, but there has been massive um, bombing of Ukrainian apartment blocks in the thousands. So uh, there's got to be some explanation for why this wasn't militarily optimised. Contra what Putin said to an audience of women on Women's Day on March the 8th, it seems that he's been misled by his generals and that there really are lots of conscripts in the in, in Russia, in, in Ukraine. It seems that a lot of them were sent in in poor vehicles with no camouflage and low ammo. And, you know, I'm not going to spin this the whole way that Admiral Radikin just did this evening and say that Putin's already lost the war, you know, the same stuff that you'll hear on the Ukrainian media. But I will say that if you want to reconcile these two fairly incontrovertible bulks of evidence now, then it is that maybe with some covering up, uh, you know, between the, the Russian MOD and, Krem and, and the Kremlin, so that Putin didn't know the whole situation, they do, do, do seem to have thought, now's the time, now the order has come, we've got to throw everything we have at the Ukraine. 
you know, yeah. uh, short of using the strategic weapons, which they're not going to do against, you know, a place where their their brothers and their their holy relics are. Obviously not. Mm -hmm. To them, Kiev is 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 Rus. You know, it's 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 the same civilization. But there there does seem to have been, um, not quite in panic, but in in a quiet desperation on the Russian side, uh, ascending in of what they knew were far suboptimal men. You know, badly trained mm -hmm. men who, in many cases, have run away and done all the things that, and had met the sticky ends that the Ukrainian media now now snicker over. Uh, because they they simply were unprepared, but it does seem that Russia had a sense of real urgency about this, and I think that's the backstory. Really, is that they feared that, uh, that that the launch of a biological agent was was on the cards. Yeah, and I I I think if I can just step in quickly there, when when the incursion happened, I think everyone was was kind of equally surprised or or, or taken aback by it and by the speed of it. Um, and I was actually talking, as I said, to a high-level Russian negotiator here. He he said something very similar to, to Alex. They were not fully prepared, and that is why um, the military is taking relatively heavy losses. And, and of course, there, you know, I, I would compare this to Syria in the beginning, of course. Like many of the kind of national defense forces that formed were farmers and, and students and doctors and, and people from the villages and the towns that got together to defend themselves against really overwhelming and very uh, well-equipped armed forces, mercenary forces. They were against an army. They weren't against sort of ragtag uh, revolutionaries. They were fighting a, a, a real army funded and equipped by the West. And that's exactly what's happening in Ukraine. Of course, as the war progressed, uh, they improved, they became more battle-hardened, but in those early days, many lives were, were lost because of this inexperience in, in battle. And um, this same guy was telling me uh, in the beginning, even the Chechens, when they came in and they were heading towards Mariupol, they were heading in a formation, and, and the commanders, I mean, Eva will will kind of smile at this. The commanders from Donetsk and Lugansk were like, guys, like, really, you can't go forward like this. You're just going to be wiped out in, in one missile, right? And they literally took them under their wing and trained them and, and in one day, perhaps, 24 hours, kind of re-trained um, them how to approach because this is a real war zone. You know, you have snipers, you, you have... Uh, um, hidden um, missile launchers, you have mines, you, you, you have many things that, that maybe these guys hadn't encountered. And but the mass what, use of human shields, which these Chechens in their uh, own supposedly backwards Muslim part of the world had never seen before either. Exactly. Yeah, and of course that was something that, that happened uh, equally regularly in, in Syria. Exactly. And that, you know, th that's the thing. People are saying to me, well, how can you be so sure that the Russians are telling the truth about their military operation? And mine and Eva's response will be, well, because we've been at the front lines when the Russians are running these, these operations exactly as they're doing now in Ukraine, surrounding, minimizing civilian casualty um, targeted precision bombing, they are only really bombing what they determine through very, very um, um, serious intelligence and surveillance to be military targets, ammunition dumps, hospitals that are occupied by the armed groups. Exactly the same has happened in Syria. The same thing where they've encircled an area, they open the humanitarian corridor, when civilians try to leave by that humanitarian corridor, they're shelled or sniped um, by uh, the terrorist groups or by the Azov, 
battalions. And you're now starting to get the stories trickle out as people right. are leaving Mariupol. You're, you're seeing them being interviewed. You're seeing them talking about exactly this, right? Um, but one thing I wanted to say to come back to Alex's point, Diliana Getanjeva has actually just put something out this evening. Um, a document dated the 15th of 12th, 2021. Ukraine asked the Turkish drone manufacturer, Baker Makina, if a uh, Bayraktar UAV could fly 300 kilometers and spray more than 20 liters of aerosol. Mm. Um, this mm. came from the Russian MOD today. So taking into account, she says, the facts about the military biological programs of the U.S. carried out under the DTRI leadership in Ukraine, it can be speculated or assumed that these were planned to be adapted for spraying toxic substances and over enemy don't, territory. Don't forget that the Ukrainians with their top-notch Soviet-era engineering skills, uh, the first thing they did when they got their Bayraktar contract was to gut them and to put beefed-up engines in them. Whereas the, you know, the, the, the Turkish-made Bayraktar off the shelf with the Turkish engines in them are perfectly sufficient for genuine UAV purposes, such as um, you know, shooting down uh, men or a tank or observing an area. But if you want to go fairly deep into enemy territory and spray nasties, then you're going to need a rather heavy-duty engine for that. Mm -hmm. And that's not something the Ukra there has been some announcement just today by the Ukrainian war machine that they're going to um, put these engines in. But I remember hearing about these Ukrainian uh, high-spec engines at least a year ago in the Bayraktars. Uh, so this has been something that perhaps was being planned through 2021. Now, before we get back the the biolabs, which we'll talk about next, because that's, that's exactly, that's a very relevant thing in this conversation, a topic in this conversation that I think ties right back to COVID as well, a lot going on there. But before we get to that, I want to just add to what you were saying in regard to, there's a lot and that's why I brought up Patrick Lancaster's, you know, page and a lot of other people out there that are showing these people from different outlets, <laughs> different locations, different times coming out of Mariupol, Kiev, and then telling you what they see happening. And to what, what Vanessa was saying, I would simply argue, as always, that we should be questioning every side that comes out of this, as I'm sure you all agree. Right. We don't know what's happening. There's politics involved. But at the end of the day, what's very obvious and that's in, that's why I included the videos, which are showing you what they see, that what they're seeing. What's very obvious is that we pointed out in the beginning that regardless of the questioning of both sides being a valid point, the Western press are not doing any of that. They're disregarding anything coming out of the Russia side while blindly taking one or the other. So no matter to, no matter to the shocking extent, Ryan, that the British right. prime minister could say two days ago, we stand with the people of Ukraine. And then he said, we stand with Kiev, we stand with Lviv and we stand with the people of Donetsk. And and can and that, I just that could add, fly with the British people? Can I just add as well, like the, the this media delegation I joined last week, it was just a two day tour, uh, uh, tour is the wrong word, but a trip to Donetsk and Lugansk, and uh, in uh, in in the Donetsk region, we went to Volnovaka, uh, Volnovaka, uh, which was liberated like I think two weeks prior to us going there last week. And there was a hospital, uh, Vanessa, this will um, resonate with, with you because there was a hospital that was badly damaged. Um, but we were told by various people that were there, you know, at the time of the, uh, the damage that it was because Ukrainian forces had occupied the hospital. 
Right. Now, I, I, I don't have Russian skills. Unfortunately, I, I speak local Arabic, but here I'm kind of at a loss. I'm, I'm depending on people to do the translations, which I've just gone back today and I was just going over them before we started. But um, I was reading through some of the, the things that the, the, this director was saying and another woman, I think she was an employee at the hospital. And they were they were detailing how they did see Ukrainian forces occupying the hospital. Um, and it, it kind of went on at length. And what I, what I noted, Vanessa, I sent you the other day, I don't know that you had time to look at it, but like there, on this media tour, there were two different French TV channels. I'm not familiar with French TV, so I, I assume they're pretty prominent yes. channels. Yeah. yeah. And hey, the uh, one... TFR and the, I can't remember the other one. Uh, but okay, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're mainstream media. So I, I skimmed through both their report. Actually, I watched both their reports, and I, I should, skim applies to their um, to that part the, the that the hospital and the people talking about the hospital because this one director he was he was kind of wishy washy like he wasn't able to say definitively this is what happened but he was saying Ukrainian forces occupied the hospital shelling was coming from such direction therefore it was probably attacking the hospital which had the Ukrainian forces but the uh, the two reports one just had the guy speaking for like three seconds even though he spoke for five or more minutes and the other had him speaking for longer but not saying that Ukrainian forces had occupied the hospital mm. so I mean you know you could argue well if they don't have access they can't really tell the whole story but they had access they're right there and I predicted I felt that would happen and the other thing of course that is quite predictable from what I've seen on their reporting in Syria is that just focusing on the destruction like you know a lot of journalists would focus on the destruction in Aleppo or Homs without saying like why so not only were terrorists occupying these buildings but they were bunkered deep below mm. so it required a lot of destruction to reach them you know and like the same kind of reporting here from what i can see there's already been examples uh, explosion a lot I, I think at least three outlets that i saw where they had video of specifically ukrainian forces leaving rocket launchers mm. on the roofs of civilian buildings and whether they were going to use them or just wanted it to look like they weren't civilian buildings that's one point but let me get your guys thoughts on, in general about about this situation here where we False flags in general has been a topic that's come up throughout from the very beginning of this. And I want to know if you guys have any insight into whether this happened or whether your thoughts on whether they, you know, just whether they might do this about in, intentionally shelling their own locations or civilian locations under their control for the argument of saying that this was what Russia did. Now, the point is that Patrick Lancaster and plenty of others have already caught people on record. And I've seen at least 20 different videos myself, which we should be questioning of people from Kiev, Mariupol, all over the place and Donetsk saying that they watched the Ukrainians shell these buildings, even to the extent of laying Russian uniforms and rations on the, on the, in the area after they were done. Now, you know, question them, but what are your thoughts on that guys, whether they would do that and whether you have insight on whether it has happened. Russia, the Ukrainian military I'm speaking to. I can't think of a single reason to discount that possibility. You know, I'm not going to make the accusation, but I cannot discount the possibility, not technically because they have brilliant and uh, extensive penetration through being Russian speakers of the Russian army. They're monitoring comms left, right and centre. Uh, a lot of even quite senior Russian officers on scene seem to be using, for want of anything better, open lines. So they will know the movements. Um, this was something that the Brits were exploiting years ago, you know, that the, the, the Ukrainians were so able to track the Russians. They've got the bulk of weaponry. Ukraine is so awash with weaponry now that when the regular MOD or the Nazi uh, units retreat from an area, they leave the NATO supplies behind and they still beg for more. 
they they it's not for want of of uh, munitions that they would do this of course this is what you're talking about Ryan is a you know a different category that's you know artillery heavy enough to shell a building i don't see any indication that they're short of that the the only thing that they're um, you know screaming and and kicking up a fuss about at the moment is give us air defenses and ultimately right. fighter jets so that it's not even the contention of the ukrainian side uh, that they are short of what's necessary to uh, to reduce to rubble large numbers of civilian buildings and you know we've been talked all evening about the uh, the ideology at play and no, I, I don't see anything that would give them any qualms about doing that if the greater goal is is you know in the way in the words of one of their thinkers olena semenyaka the revival of the white race you know right. uh, out of the stalgewitter some something fine will be formed and we know from yefen karas of c14 the svoboda youth wing what the, the he's 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 run his mouth off and told us rather more than he should have actually he said that our security guarantors and by the way zelensky's echoed this now our security guarantors are britain and poland and turkey he left out israel he was clever enough to do that at least but that's what the the, the deep states of those countries want to see they want to see a ukraine centered eastern european confederation and intermarium that will contain the best of the white race and push on into russia and germany and absorb bits of both all on the record so if that's your ideology who cares about a few you know from 2014 onwards the tv channels owned by the oligarchs we've been discussing all evening have repeatedly said the people who live in donbass just to take that one example are useless eaters they they cannot get with the program they must be killed the word killed was used right well, why don't I, I'm going to, I want to play two quick clips, about 30 seconds each, and then we can shift into the biolab discussion and give you guys, give me your thoughts on this since this seems very, very relevant. First, I'll just show one that just recently came out. And again, a video that you should be questioning, wonder whether or not this could be fake or manipulated, but I'll play this to show the, a child, an adolescent saying that they are being shot at as they leave these locations. Uh, Ryan, I'm sorry, just before you do, I have to step out. I've got to get going early tomorrow. No problem. No problem, Eva. Thank you so yeah, much sorry, for joining us. Sorry, guys, but thank you so much. A pleasure to be on with all of you. Thank you, Eva. It's a pleasure to have you. So let me play this real quick then. Mm-hmm. Those in the podcast, we saw this yesterday, basically saying that the Azovs were in the windows of a nine-story residential building. And that as they were walking away, they were being shot at. So they specifically asked them what they were doing when they said they were leaving, even saying we had to because our house was destroyed. They shoot at them anyway, according to this adolescent. So it's that, that's there is an endless stream of those things coming out. And I would argue on aggressively one side of this discussion, which speaks to that. If you, if you want to comment on that, I'll, otherwise I'll play the other one. Um, I mean, sorry, I, I think I lost my internet connection temporarily there. Um, but I, I just wanted to mention as well, um, you know, if we consider that the powers behind both what's what happened in Syria and what is now happening in Ukraine are perfectly capable of staging false flags and, you know, massacring civilians to do so. We've seen it multiple times in Syria, um, more recently, of course, with the um, Duma chemical attack, where they were effectively or, or speculative, they, they, they murdered civilians and used them as props in this particular staging event, um, which has been completely discredited by the OPCW inspectors. So in my view, um, it is really not beyond the realms of possibility, for example, in in the Mariupol hospital, 
right. um, incident. Um, the claims are the counterclaims to the the Western mainstream media narrative. Of course, are that the Azov battalion had um, occupied the hospital, um, and then of course there's a number of other um, elements that that point to this being a false flag. The more dramatic one, of course, is um, the the uh, imprisoning of civilians inside the theater, and then according to to Western mainstream, Russia bombed uh, the theater. According to the counter-narrative, Azov Battalion rounded people up into um, the the theater and then detonated it. Now, where I will say, and Alex will remember this, um, when I was living uh, in France, I was living close to an area called Orador-Sioglan. Mm. Now, at this point, I can't remember which year of the war it was. 1944. Um, Thank you. I was going to say that, but I wasn't entirely sure. The Nazis rounded up, I think it was 242 civilians from this small village into the church. They then set fire to the church. Only one woman managed to escape um, from the furnace. So they burned uh, women and children in this church. And, and later, I believe, they discovered it was the wrong Orador Sioglan. But this demonstrates um, the mentality through history, so from 1944 to now, it, it wouldn't mean anything to them to do this, to achieve their agenda, to achieve their goals. And then on top of that, they have what I can only describe as the, the kind of the psychotics that, that, that created the terrorist groups who, who had no connection to Islam whatsoever. Their, their actions in Syria were far more satanic than Islamic. And then you, so you have the same powers orchestrating events inside um, Ukraine. You have the same elements on the ground, like Bellingcat, like Hamish de Breton Gordon. So in other words, the, the intelligence outreach agents are there on the ground. So they are probably um, orchestrating and manufacturing events as, as uh, the... the, the um, the Russian military campaign advances. Oh, we, we haven't talked about PR, but this is something where from Chechnya onwards in the 90s, the Brits have been absolutely riding on point. Uh, it seems if you look at the Twitter accounts of British based PR companies, even quite, you know, fairly minor ones. I saw one based in Inverness the other day. It seems to be doing nothing other on Twitter than cheerleading those who are saying what uh, providing what they call the correct Ukraine war narrative, and they're obviously going to be funded by the state to do this. There's even more direct connection with uh, Orador Suglan than Vanessa has just outlined, because France Info, which is a, a platform of French taxpayer-funded public service broadcasters, so it's the, it's like the the, the 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 association of all the French equivalents of the BBC in one one conglomerate. France Info carried in its written website content recently this little uh, uh, Q, uh, what's the word uh, information piece on uh, who are these Azov people that we keep hearing about, and it coolly dropped in in the middle of this piece just a couple of days ago. Um, they still use the same insignia as the Second SS Regiment Das Reich. That was the same regiment that committed the atrocity at Orador Suglan. It didn't say, unfortunately, there was no journalistic adverbialising in the sentence. It was just, they still use the Das Reich regim SS regiment insignia. And as you guys both pointed out, the, the, the obvious tie into like to at least 2015 forward as you discussed rather 14 forward is that that happened in that time frame as well where and then and the media 
it completely covered that story up about putting all of this stuff in embryo or in fact in its full horror was already happening eight years ago by by one year into this new regime 2014 to 2015 it was abundantly clear to the people of donetsk and lugansk what they wanted okay for full full disclosure we should say that they are fairly communistically minded people and that they're known for that by their neighbors in both ukraine and russia as being unreformed bolsheviks you know but that that's the the way of life they want they they want to stick to the the economy they know they're you know fairly fairly localist in their thinking but there was absolutely no place for them in the new order and this was exactly the same kind of people groups and local socio-economic settings that were eradicated by the ss and above all by their local partners in the russian to, to german borderlands in the second world war those who even back to um in fact it was uh, friedrich engels wasn't it who described them uh, such people as the Volker abfeller the the refuse or the riffraff of nations that couldn't be reformed into the new world order they just had to be eradicated on mass very interesting i mean it, it's it, this for me is a that ties perfectly back into what is the larger ongoing agenda that as we know i mean th- these things never really pan out exactly there's multiple facets multiple plans and things shift as things progress i mean i think we now see the development of technology and how this has rushed in the agenda to create the things they're doing under the under the concept of the great reset and so on but before we get there i want to talk about the idea of these bio labs and and which is just in my opinion one part but a central part of why there's a logical a reason reasoning of for why russia would want to take action so so you know in this moment when people didn't expect it on top of the element of the extremists we've already discussed so in regard to those bio labs how relevant of a point do you feel that is in regard to what russia's been doing and then we can discuss kind of the obvious overlaps of covid-19 into the great reset and i guess the validity of those labs themselves because i i shouldn't take for let's say face value that you guys agree with that but i i i think the the presence of those have been proven but whether you think they're weapons and so on so for the first week or two after the russian mod came out with its cache of of documents mm-hmm. the rebuttal was ah you you fools this is just a uh, defensive this is this is the ukrainian <laughs> public health ministry and they've been given by public health england which by the way is now called the uk health security agency no 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 ominousness there but they they've been given these samples of you know middling not really sort of weaponizable but but middling uh pathogens you know bacteria just to to work on them to 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 see you know keep the world safe or whatever but since victoria newland failed to deny this you know the the with the weapon elements in her in her congressional testimony all bets are off on that. Well, and also it's the extraordinary, you know, they they think people are just going to swallow this whole threat reduction agency thing. Okay, so why isn't it on American soil? Why is it on the borders of Iran, China, Russia, right? And 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 the majority in Ukraine on the border with Russia, of course, um Delyana's initial investigation was in Tbilisi in Georgia, right? But I I think the more frightening thing and I mean what you were talking about in in Donetsk and Lugansk is effectively this is eugenics this mm. is the ethnic cleansing of yeah. as as Alex said you know the 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 undesirables right and you know all, the, the if, if we go very very wide scale for a moment you know the, the this idea of you know where does the current oligarchy come from and and I'm one of several who've said in recent testimonies it basically it goes back to Cecil Rhodes and his 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 uh uh his mentor at Oxford or the whole group of them were mentored at Oxford by Ruskin uh you know in this this rather you know supposedly gentle idea of you know why can't everyone enjoy the standards of Englishmen but if you go back to the mid 
20th, 19th century, and Matt Ayrett is one of those who've been bringing this out recently. You go back to Aldous Huxley, the spinning of Darwinism towards social Darwinism, the stealing of uh, Matthew Patrick's observations uh, so that they could be presented by the, the, the well-connected club, Galton and Huxley and so on. And Darwin's wife actually wrote to Matthew Patrick and said, yes, my husband nicked your ideas, but it was necessary for a greater cause because we're the establishment, don't you know? So the further back you go and ultimately you get to back to Malthus in the 18th, end of the 18th century, you know, what underpins this all is eugenics. Nothing else is going to motivate such evil right. other than the idea that we have to create a new mankind. And the Soviets suffered this. You know, the Russians know whereof they speak because they were subjected to this for 80 years. Mm. And, and it overlaps. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, I think um, the, the kind of, although many people have kind of uh, dismissed this and said, yeah, but, you know, how can they develop a pathogen that will target um, an, an ethnic, um, um, what's the word? Um, an ethnic community, for, for want of another word. Um, but, you know, as Deliana said, they were um, working on collecting. There was, um, and his name escapes me, but there was a neurosurgeon from Nashville, actually, who had been sent to um, Ukraine to operate on um, um, Ukrainian nationals. And um, it was uh, the armed forces, the I think it was the um, Air Force, had requested the RNA of um, Caucasian Russians. Yes, although to, to, avoid to, to avoid confusion between languages, Caucasian in Russia, would, Kafkaski, would mean exactly the guys they don't want. They're wanting right. Ruski, you know, ethnic Russians. Right. Um, so, you know, this whether they have the technology to produce... Um, a targeted attack on on an ethnic minority that or or majority that they want to target that's kind of beside the point. The fact is that they're working towards this kind of eugenics project right um and we know that that covid has been about um DNA harvesting through the PCR tests et cetera et cetera right so what why should this be any less of a threat than what we're facing under the covid program? Right. Maybe right. it's it's part and parcel of it. But certainly if, if Russia were were aware of this and at the time they did create quite a stink about it and they said, you know, what, what on earth are you doing? I mean, this this sort of violates every single possible um, I, I'm trying to think what laws it would 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 uh, <laughs> violate. But, you know, the human nature it violates human nature. I mean, this is a eugenics program. Right. Right. I was given, you know, training by the Port and Down guys because I was in the CBRN cross-disciplinary team at GCHQ, chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear. And the bottom line of their training, which I know is the same given to CIA and NSA because it's a joint Anglo-American enterprise, is face it, guys, nobody's going to unleash a biological weapon because you'd have to be completely insane to do so. But this this has the unexamined premise in it uh, that we're not run by insane people at the very top. And of course, that leads into exactly what they would then argue. Well, of course, because Putin's crazy or Assad's crazy, right? That's that's the catch. Yes, projection. projection. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what what about the utter insanity of the currently uh, ruling Ukrainian authorities? Because they will have nodded this through, as with the Georgian authorities when they with the Lugar Center in Tbilisi, yeah. and the Ukrainians. You know, not all of them are as thick as as uh, Yevhen Karas, who gave that clip last. Uh, month and said we're, we're just thickos who like fighting so the west uses us so that was that was a, a gem of a clip but they're not all that thick so the, the authorities at the ministries the public health ministry and the presidency will have thought hmm targeting ethnic russians are ah, 
Okay, those who emanate from Rus, who would that be? That would be the Russians, the Belarusians, and oh dear, the Ukrainians, right? So they're going to fall victim to the same bioweapon, aren't they? That's interesting. Yeah. So if you, if you wave that through, then you're obviously not concerned about Ukraine. And I'm afraid much of this is applicable to Zionism as too. There's a layer of Zionism that doesn't care if most Jews die. And this is enunciated in terms by Victor Rothschild during the war, when he says that uh, in the post-war settlement we'll have a country, but there won't be any room in it for poor schnorrers. You know, a, a, right. a, a Yiddish term and, of abuse for mustachioed religious Jews. And of course, we saw that with the mass vaccination programs in Israel. Um, right. You know, so so that backs up what you've just said, Alex. Yeah, there, there's a lot of evidence for this. And this is this just kind of puts a nice pin on, on a lot of the things we've been referencing, how there's more manipulation from these these high level. I mean, we can call them eugenicists. There's a lot of different terms for it. Right. We, they, they, it, it has really. They're, these are all just ideas for a means to an end. The religious idea, however they achieve these goals, and as I was just showing a moment ago, there's evidence going back a long way. This is just 1998, but discussion of Israel specifically focusing on ethnic bioweapons, the United States government focusing on that same research, which uh, brings me to a point to wrap this segment up in regard to Russian um, MOD now saying that Kiev's regime is seriously considering bioweapons against Russia and Donbass. And so whether that's just a narrative being spun or not, I, I obviously we laid out a lot of evidence for why that's a valid concern. It's interesting to see that that's where this ultimately leads. And then this ties back into the larger conversation of where this seems to be driving with COVID-19, with the Great Reset and so on. So if you guys want to comment on this one point, feel free and jump in. But then let's t talk about, you know, some valid concerns people may have about whether or not on a larger scale, Russia's government may be involved in the larger Great Reset agenda and whether there might be vying agendas within all of this, which in no way is to over overshadow the real issue that's happening in Donbass and what's really happening in Ukraine. So give me your thoughts on that. What should we say? In a nutshell, it, the question is, is the St. Petersburg clique still running Russia? You know, um, there's uh, the likes of German Greff who runs Sparebank, which is now just calling itself Sper. It's trying to be more than a bank. It's trying to be the digital ID champion and, and make life possible in Russia. Uh, and these other figures that came out of the, the St. Petersburg uh, morass of the 1990s when it was a bit of a free-for-all, are they really running the country? I mean, there's been a bit of a hoo-ha recently over why Putin hasn't um, uh, ha availed himself of an opportunity to get rid of Elvira Nibulina at the central bank, but she's she's uh, she's up for uh, expiry of her term soon anyway this summer, if I understand correctly. Um, if you look at an article which I know Vanessa has, I think, republished or drawn attention to recently by Sergei Glazyev, one of the top economic advisors to the Kremlin, he's now come out and said it, that he hasn't mentioned Nibulina by name, but what Sergei Glazyev has said is, uh, okay, we 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 deliberately well, we deliberately, but we 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 de facto had to leave the economic people alone, much as China has had to do with the, you know the Shanghai crowd. We left them alone while we were consolidating. Now, as it were, the the, the manic West has done our d difficult decision for us because by cutting us out of the banking system, they have taken the blow which otherwise the Kremlin would have had against us. Uh, domestically because we would have been blamed for the rising prices and the unavailability of goods. And Glazyev says in this article that, you know, that they are now going to turn their attention in the Kremlin to the economic construction. And for short, you can say that what he's promulgating is in a Russo-Chinese-Iranian triangle, ultimately, is state socialism, but it's going to be bankless state socialism with investment of state capital in infrastructure as well. Now, there are, you know, hazards down that road. Uh, I'd be the first to say, but at least it, 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 uh, it's, it's a vision that centres around the nation state, which, of course, can be greatly abused. 
you know, the, the, the biggest question of our times, I think, for any dissident is, have we finished with the nation state? Do we just do everything locally? And that was the big debate towards the end of COVID or the, the, the consensus towards the end of COVID is whatever religion or nation or philosophy you have, uh, whatever gifts you have, uh, your only salvation from now on, humanly speaking, is to have a local community that will feed itself and not be dependent on any kind of currency other than what you can have locally. You know, so that that's in a nutshell is, is perhaps what what russia the, the good half of russia is is trying to do at an elite level is is build that up and, that, and, and, that and rather than doing it locally as dissidents in the west are trying to do is perhaps trying to click its fingers in, in perhaps more in hope than in certainty and say well the whole of eurasia can have this in one go you know it's, it's a bit of a maybe a bit of a pipe dream but that would simultaneously explain why there are a lot of wef tied people in the russian and indeed chinese economic scene and yet at the same time why they're not on board and why they do have a fundamental philosophical difference over whether nation states should exist or not. See, that's a really... Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Vanessa, go ahead. No, and I just wanted to say, you know, I, 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 a lot of people, um, and, and quite rightly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively open-minded on this, but I just think we should be very aware of not reducing the argument down too much and, and forgetting mm -hmm. to take in... Um, the ideological, cultural, nation-state differences that exist within whatever cartel has been loosely formed, and not forgetting, you know, the WEF has kind of cancelled Putin right now. Mm -hmm. But if we, if if we go pre-February twenty-fourth, okay, and and everyone is talking about um, Russia and China signing up to Agenda twenty thirty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then if we go post-February twenty-fourth. And, you know, um, various people have spoken about Sergei uh, uh, Sobyanin. How would I pronounce that, Alex? Sobyanin. Uh, Sobyanin. The, yeah. the mayor of um, Moscow, who was heavily invested in, for example, the, the COVID vaccine um, program, yeah. but who now, okay, since February the 24th, is talking um, very much about investment in property, that everyone should become a, honor, a homeowner. Hmm. There are um, um, uh, what's God, um, incentives um, being opened up to foreigners to come and own land, own property to build so they can buy the land. They're incentivized to buy the land and then they're given help to build. Okay, Not with all the provisos that come from Western mortgages and, and Western entrapment into the, into the debt cycle. Right. Um, and what he's talking about is um, because they will encourage people to invest in real estate, so they will own something, which goes completely against the kind of the shrub, you will own nothing and be happy. Right. right? Mm -hmm. um, using 100% um, or as much as possible of Russian manufactured construction goods, they're talking about this increasing labor and generating cash cash uh, is the important word here and since february the 24th they've been talking about generating cash not getting away from cash of course this might change further down the line but i'm just saying we have to look at the rhetoric now and the rhetoric pre february the 24th and understand that the russian um mentality is to kind of be liked by everyone Russia negotiates, Russia works within a diplomatic environment that is completely different to the West, right? Mm -hmm. The West mm -hmm. is based on, on lies, deceit, hypocrisy, um, 
sanctimoniousness is a good word, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Russia really, really, actually, is a pretty genuine broker in diplomatic affairs. It thinks, it it, it projects that everyone should adhere to the agreement, right? You know, it's, it's in some ways, I don't know, but I've seen this in Syria. It's a little bit naive about the honesty of the West. And it, it hasn't, I don't think, fully learned the lesson that the West will always betray it. The West will always, um, you know, um, uh, double back on what it said, right? Um, and Putin himself has been talking about restructuring the economy, increasing social benefits, um, <clears throat> opening up to small businesses, private businesses, breaking down the administrative bureaucratic barriers to enable this to happen more quickly. Um, he's uh, empowered regional heads. Of course, Russia is largely a, a federalized country. It's huge. It's vast. You know, for Putin to be managing the whole country is almost impossible. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's left to these regional heads. The regional heads are now being encouraged to provide whatever social benefits necessary to help the civilians through um, these difficult times. So we're seeing citizen-centered policies that have been missing from from Western policies for, for decades, mm-hmm. you know. Well, um, one of my, oh, sorry if you weren't done, it's a little bit of a delay. No, no. Okay. But one of my concerns is, and this is what I'm always pointing out. I mean, we have to be honest with ourselves about what's in front of us. What's in front of us is rarely what's really happening. But what we see paints exactly what you just said, Vanessa. But one of my concerns, and, and to those out there that are worried, and is there's always going to be somebody who were siding with one side over the other or so on, is that I've always pointed out that you can make an argument for why it makes sense from anybody's perspective right now, but specifically Russia, to play the good guy, essentially, in counterbalance to the obvious lawlessness of the West right now, or specifically the U.S. government. So you could say that it would benefit them politically to take that side. But again, the point would be simply that it, what, if, if all we have is what is in front of us, the evidence we have around the topic, it seems pretty clear that they are playing, the, 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 they are acting in counterbalance to the actions they're taking. But then that what the and my point is, I agree with you, Vanessa, but I think what I'm concerned about is where this then goes in the larger scale, because the idea of how a lot of these actions play out, regardless of whether the World Economic Forum seems to be co- being cold right now against Russia, that they seem to be pulling back a little bit, the difference of you know the way that their actions on the ground seem to be counting the larger agenda, it's things like this. Whether and I'll even go ahead and say right out of the gate that the idea, like the point of saying, well, if you're going to give us sanctions, we're going to make you pay in rubles for the, the gas and oil and stuff like this. It's a very logical stance to take. It's sort of a tit for tat move, but ultimately leads in the same direction of what we're seeing created in regard to the shortages, supply lines, and these kind of things. So it just yeah. makes me concerned. Chancellor Schultz of Germany couldn't quite believe his ears. He's actually <laughs> The first thing he did was to say, uh, would the Kremlin like to put this in writing for us? And so some <laughs> Russian wag has immediately tweeted out a childishly simplistic diagram of the German and Russian flags with one arrow going in each direction. Rubles this way, gas this way. Got it? 
Well, I mean, and it seems like they came out, Kremlin officials said yesterday that they weren't going to rush this out fast, but apparently now Bloomberg is saying that they said that they are going to do it right away. How much this is being lost in the misrepresentation of the Western press about what they're actually saying, that's always a possibility. But anyway, I mean, to, sort of to kind of wrap this up in this point about where this seems to be going, and then we can just touch on the Great Reset if you'd like to have any points on that about where yeah. that's going. Well, well Glazyev did say in that article, Vanessa, help us, you were just, I think, away when uh, when I mentioned Glazyev. You have actually reposted him, so so tell tell listeners where they could, that can be found in english um it can be found at uh the wall will fall which is my blog and i think also at oh god matt eric's site is it the rising foundation tidefoundation.com yes Sorry. well glad yeah. if there as I, I repeat, uh, yeah. one of the top couple of economic advisors to the kremlin anyway is saying that mm. from now on no one you know he doesn't use the country name but let's just say for argument's sake not even peru is going to hold uh foreign currency reserves anymore because the country that is the, the titular sovereign of that currency uh, as has now been demonstrated can just uh, confiscate those assets held so right. any country with, with its wits about it, even a non-aligned country in, for example, Latin America, is going to say from now on, you will pay us in pesos for what we export to you. Which, again, sort of, I mean, again, that, that's a logical response to this action. But in the, at, at the end of the day, it clearly kind of leads in the same direction of kind of breaking down the current reality of the system and, and the reality of it and which will open the opportunity for their reimagined system. I mean, that's whether that's what these people are doing or being tricked into doing, it's leading that's into it. what they're ultimately trying to and accomplish, with, I would say. With, with very great esteem for both uh, James Corbett and Ian Davis, who I think mm-hmm. have been the two most stri- strident uh, of the serious analysts to say that they think Russia and China are rather completely on board with the, well, not the WEF, but with the, with the reset generally. Right. Their great forte, what what brought them to greatness, is painstaking analysis of huge numbers of documents. They're documentary analysts, first and foremost. And they wouldn't claim to be, you know, cultural specialists in parts of the world they haven't visited much. Uh, this this is a, a sorely lack, lacking skill in many, so all, all kudos to them. But if we put that in the mix together with, for example... Vanessa's style of analysis, which is very heavy on personal encounters with authoritative or experienced people, then she's going to get much more of the of the depth or the colour about what's going on. The kind of stuff that, to use an old Persian proverb, is so 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 important to the state that it doesn't go on paper. I think the old Persian proverb is important things never get written down. Right. So you've got to put that together on paper. The Russians and the Chinese are going to play the game. Yes, of course, we want a fourth industrial revolution. But what do they mean by it? Right. You know, you've got to have the stereo view. And yeah, the- this is a sorry. This I I really right. want to kind of hop in here because mm-hmm. this is a really important point, and this is a point that Matt Eric made with me the other night when I interviewed him. Um, because I was kind of I I mocked him slightly about the use of sustainable in in his uh, article, um, um, extinction or evolution for humanity, cooperation, and he's talking about the need for cooperation. Um, um, but what he then explained, and it made total sense to me, is in a sense, are we projecting the meaning of those words in in the Western agenda onto the meaning of those words to the Chinese, to the Russians, to the Indians, um, yeah. to the Iranians, to the mm-hmm. Middle Easterners, to the Syrians, etc.? Because well, they if, are if using the fourth it in industrial a very revolution. If the fourth industrial revolution 
as as enunciated from Switzerland means you will be eating bugs. Well, that's not even going to frighten the Southeast Asians because they already subsist on bugs. Right. You know, by the other at the other end of the scale, I don't think that the Russians and the Poles are ever going to be persuaded to eat bugs. I think they're going to be grilling their meat till kingdom come. So that's just one in a fairly trivial example. Well, not not trivial if, if bug burgers are the only things available in your supermarket, but still. <laughs> but I think also, I mean, Biden actually made it very clear in his speech that this is a war on the EU. I mean, he didn't use those words, but he described perfectly how this is going to negatively affect the EU, but he didn't mention the US. So I think, I mean, this is a, a long-standing war against particularly Germany and, and against the collaboration or the pivot eastwards within the EU itself, but particularly from Germany, Right. I don't know if Alex agrees with me on this. So Completely. we could also argue that the US is weaponizing this war against the EU that they wanted to bring into line. And, and to so, again, NATO is center stage. We're no longer talking about the EU army or the autonomous um, EU uh, governance, etc. You know, the EU was starting to kind of since Brexit, it was starting to kind of, oh, well, maybe we can get out of the central governance. Mm -hmm. So what's now happened is NATO is center stage again. They're talking about bringing other countries into NATO. So NATO takes supremacy again. The U.S. takes yeah. supremacy again. Right. Well, in fact, who, who are, the, who are those, yeah. the security guarantors that the Ukrainians don't want to talk about? It's the French and the Germans, isn't it? They, France and Germany <laughs> yeah. were both signatories to the Minsk Agreement, so they are de jure, or at least until February 24th this year, so for eight years past, they were the de jure security guarantors of Ukraine along with Russia. All of a sudden, from Yevhen Karas, right, the, 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 uh, the commander of the C-14 Nazis, right through to the actual president, Zelensky, they're saying, we don't want these, these boring uh, and fuddy-duddy NATO security guarantors. We want individual currency, countries that have proven their mettle to be our security guarantors. Who are they? The United States, the United Kingdom, <laughs> Poland, Turkey and Israel. Right. So all of the NATO penumbra without what Rumsfeld called old Europe. And of course, you add those entities into the mix of whether it's using NATO or a version of Article 5 you know, political situation, it's only going to give them a loophole into creating another situation, which they then justify they have to take action about. It's just, I don't believe Russia is going to take that. And if they do, that would, I mean, in my mind, kind of point to what we're talking about, but we'll have to see how that ultimately pans out. But to your, to your point, Alex, I think it's, it's interesting to see the difference. I forget who I was just talking about this with of basically, oh, I think it was Catherine Austin Fitz in the conversation basically saying that, you know, Russia and China are involved insofar as that they they see the benefit of how this can help build their control and, and their governance and everything else. But they're about their sovereignty. So it's sort of like, yes, we're yeah. involved as long Th that as... That is the fundamental food. distinction right. between the Western New World Order and the Eastern New World Order. However pessimistic you are about the Eastern New World Order, even, you know, much as I admire him, I don't agree with him on everything. Joel Skousen, I think, is the, the boldest in this camp, and he's serious. He would say the Eastern New World Order is about sovereignty. Mm -hmm. right? The Western New World Order is about globalism. And I, I think it's it's really important to look at even, okay, I'll take my personal experience of Russia inside Syria. Damascus still has its sovereignty. We saw that in the recent situation in 2021 in Dara. Damascus took military decisions without Russian approval um, and it carried them out. Russian, Russia then, of course, supported it because Syria is their partner. They're not their vassal state. They're not their subjugated 
ally. And this is the massive difference between right. Russia's involvement and American involvement. America's involvement is to just pulverize everything, turn every country into a failed state so they can pirate it, plunder it, take right. everything that they need and keep control, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's effectively what they've tried to do in Syria. They failed largely. Of course, Syria is suffering hugely under the economic great reset for the last 10 years. And this is another thing that worries me about this discourse. It's very Western-centric, generally speaking. People have, and as I say, this is part of, of the COVID effect, people have kind of effectively forgotten the prey nations that have been suffering for centuries under the Great Reset, without resources, um, without uh, civilian infrastructure, without an economy to speak of, um, raging inflation, etc. Yeah, Everything and, and that all is of those now countries, coming to the West. Sorry, yeah. All right. those things, as, as soon as they have been released from feudalism, often foreign, you know, ethnically foreign-dominated feudalism, all the serious countries uh, that have been suffering in that situation, lack of infrastructure and dying from preventable diseases and the like, they've all gone to state socialism first. It might not be pleasant for everyone to hear that, but that's the route that Syria took when it uh, was released from Ottoman suzerainty. And it's what the Czechoslovaks chose and the Yugoslavs chose. And they, in fact, merged several ethnically related, although there were differences between them, ethnically related nations into a larger state to make a success of state socialism. And in one case, they even, you know, the Yugoslavs, they even had a king over it. But it was a state socialist model. And that, that of course, is what had to be wrecked in the Balkan Wars, because that was not the way that the world was supposed to go. You know, I'm no socialist, but I can perfectly well understand that if your worldview, take Ireland again, if if, if all you've had is overlordship and, uh, you know, exploitation and being kept on the breadline for centuries, you suddenly have a state. What are you going to do? You're going to make it as, as beneficent a socialist model as you can. My point in that regard is always is I think that we it's it's partisanship, political manipulation in my mind to say that one, any I, any government can eventually become centralized. I mean, look what we're dealing with in regard to the United States and, and our democracy and how that's led, or any of the Western world is look at where we are right now. You know, yes, communism or, or any socialism or any way you want to look at it can, can lead there. And, and historically, there's examples of that. But it's an oval representation in my mind. I, and, and you could point at places like Bolivia or Venezuela and how they've shown or it, Libya, for example, how historically it has become a place that was Libya is a great example of the highest quality of life in any African nation up until they yeah. destroyed it under guise of liberation. Right. They, they just like the examples of Putin and Assad, they framed him as the worst mm-hmm. person alive. But now that you some of the fog of war dissipates, you can look back and go, well, that wasn't really true. You know, and so it's mm-hmm. interesting how that works. Go ahead, Vanessa, you had a point. No, but also if you look at the difference between uh, America in uh, Africa, for example, and China in Africa, if you speak to to Africans that are benefiting from Chinese trade partnerships, um, if if you look at the fact that even within Syria, the Belt and Road Initiative, which Syria is a very active partner because geographically, of course, it's it's the hub of the entire initiative to some degree. Um, but there's talk from China of building this this high speed uh, rail network from Iran through Iraq through Syria and down to, of course, Israel will be terrified because they'll assume it will go down to Palestine, but to Lebanon. Um, so you know that there's a massive difference between American UK imperialism and expansionism 
and and we can put that under the great reset because you know it's it's very similar in its nature and russian chinese expansionism which generally is is not i mean alex probably knows more of the history but has not been military per se and as i said russia's expansionism in syria has been to expand its military base and to provide economic um partnerships many of which of course it's not talking about because of the sanction regime the caesar law it can't be open about what it's actually doing inside syria because it'll be hit with further sanctions under the caesar law and you know people don't recognize this a lot of russia's silence over what it's doing in syria is because of this it's because it's at risk of of greater sanctions although maybe now that will be less of a problem mm. because they've been hit with almost every single um sanction in existence i think and and these are unilateral sanctions right so i mean it, we need to understand from yeah. this is these are illegal by every de- definition of the word this is from one country to another country and yet this mm-hmm. i mean and, but let's be clear russia and china have started doing it throughout the years themselves i mean everyone begins to do this now but it's still something that's not valid in my opinion but to your point well, it, I, it's it, it, sanctions yeah. are, are a an act of war and b yeah. always illegal and in, in a country's domestic law if they're not constitutionally permitted right because often in many constitutions it's mm-hmm. it's overreach of the executive to carry out sanctions without the judiciary and the legislature uh, approving it. Exactly. There are also uh, supranational bodies, largely uh, most notably the EU, that take it upon themselves to start issuing sanctions. And even people in their own legal order, in their own court and parliament, have said, "We don't have the power to do this. It's not in our treaties." But they go ahead and do it anyway. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, the, the whole point about Syria and everything else, I think, is a good point to end on, and we can talk about, you know, where you see this going. But the overlap there is really important. Uh, for the, again, for those people out there, you know, Putin, don't make Putin a hero. Don't side with one side. Side or the other, you know, and that's not what we're doing, but that's how this gets perceived. You have no, to look at the evidence in front of us. And as your point, and I've made this many times, you look at what actually happens in, in like, taking Africa, as you pointed out, where you could they, they make the, the argument that, well, we can't just give Africa to Russia and China, but that's nobody, you're not, th- that implies that they already feel they're in control of the area and they can give it to one yeah, person exactly. or the other. And, and ultimately what they're doing is just saying, because they may come in and make a deal and I'm sure they strong arm, I'm sure they take advantage of a smaller place like any government would, but it's a deal. It's a mutually agreed upon deal versus, well, they're going to deal with them. Well, therefore we have to destabilize, invade, occupy and manipulate. And it's an obvious. This is the point. You're preventing multipolarity. That's that's right. the, the difference, right? And and the thing is, when, when China comes in, of course, they have benefits, but at least they're investing in infrastructure. They're building roads. They're building infrastructure. What does America do? It, it, it destroys the infrastructure, right. generally speaking. And whether right. they intend, so quite literally in the case of Serbia, yeah. it shows they've destroyed yeah. in every place they end up in, you know, claiming they're going to build yeah. hospitals and then it doesn't happen or they destroy them anyway, you know? Yeah, I mean, they've destroyed Syria's civilian infrastructure, which is a war crime in itself. They've burned agricultural crops. Right. Um, they've they've decimated other agricultural areas. They have bombed hospitals, electrical power stations, water supply centers, etc. Um, they are allowing a NATO member state, Turkey, to deprive 2 million people in Hasaka of water. They are siphoning wheat and barley out via their their Kurdish separatist proxies. They are occupying oil resources and allowing their their ISIS and Kurdish separatist proxies to to make money on this, billions on this, and and allowing Al-Qaeda to process 
um, to, to have a monopoly on the processing of that oil before siphoning right. it into Turkey and then to Israel. Grand industrial theft, right? right. So, I mean, they've, they've basically picked Syria clean. And now Syria are... De- and, and another very important point, look at the 4.5 billion population that are kind of waiting in the wings to see what happens in Ukraine. And what does that include? India, China, Pakistan, Iran, many of the Central uh, African Republic countries, Latin American uh, countries, Middle Eastern countries, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Libya, all of them refusing to join in with the sanctions against Russia, abstaining, but remaining neutral because they are actually kind of, I I kind of see them in the wings kind of thinking what's going to happen. In fact, two, two of them are very notable are Morocco and Georgia, from both of which Zelensky yeah. recalled his ambassadors today because he said we frankly don't want to have ambassadors yeah, exactly. in countries that will not, will not declare total war on Russia. Wow. How transparent. I mean, it really is just <laughs> the whole part. Every every part of this is on its face showing you what they're doing and they just call it something else, which is pretty much what they've relied on through COVID and everything else. Why, why don't we finish with you know, whoever wants mm. to go first, where you see this going, right? World War Three, you know, world, you know, however, you know, all these conversations around all this. Where, what do you see coming next? Hypothetically, go on, Vanessa. Alex. I mean, it could, it could be that you don't know. I, mean, I don't want to put words. <laughs> no, this is this is, this is the uh, yeah the poison chalice. This question, yeah, uh, hostage to fate and all that. But you know, look, you guys, you um, guys are, it's are not going to be a short war. It, it is right. it is not going to be a short war, right? You, you've got you've got a totally embittered Ukrainian uh, ethnos now, right? And in fact, more than the ethnos, because the uh, the, the Russian speakers in eastern and southern Ukraine have gone along with this discourse in a way that wouldn't have been expected even a few years ago and are cutting off their own Russian family family members in some cases. So you are going to have the crucible of the makings there of a long-term insurgency. They've got the brains, they've got the, the bravery. Everyone knows that, you know, that the Slavs are some of the world's best you know, fighters, both in terms of, of nous and in terms of you know, stamina. And they've got they're awash with with um, well the, the two deadly things the the Western weaponry and the West Western ideology uh, that's come into them. So this is not going to be an, an a, you know an easy one. This is, the, the, a, even if there were a change of course, change of heart in the Kremlin, and they were to go all out using more strategic weapons in order to flatten Ukrainian population centres, which I don't think they will do. But if they were to do that, um, I just don't see this war ending anytime soon. I think it's it's destined to be an Afghanistan of our time. I agree, unfortunately. What are your thoughts, Vanessa? Um, I mean, yeah, I totally agree with Alex. I think also I tend to see Poland as having the same role as Turkey had in Syria. So I think Poland is a potential high risk. And Poland, as far as I know, has nuclear warheads. Um, and targeting Moscow is only five minutes away, and Moscow doesn't have an early warning system, if I remember correctly. Um, so I think Poland is going to become more prominent um, in the very near future, if, if Alex agrees. I too, um, I do. Yeah. And um, you know, and uh, also Poland has its own sort of expansionist um, ideas of of retaking mm. um, the western territories of Ukraine. So I think. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in this for the long haul. I think there is a very high potential for um, escalating false flags 
of course, manufactured um, by the West, in, in my opinion, to... I, I don't see, although NATO are effectively indirectly in Ukraine, of course, they're supplying the weapons, they're supplying the training, um, the equipment, um, the intelligence, their training in cyber warfare, of course, their media is there, etc. So effectively, they are there, but very similar to Syria, they're acting through proxies and they're sacrificing. Of course, this is another thing that people are not realizing. They're, they're using the Ukrainians in their war against Russia. They're turning Slav against Slav and they're sacrificing Ukrainian lives. You know, the Russians are doing everything they can to preserve those civilian lives. But who has effectively um, instigated this war and who is prepared to sacrifice Ukrainian lives to achieve their objectives against Russia? And that is the West. Right. Which is you know, because done. even if the next state that gets embroiled is Poland, well, they're a different yeah. branch, uh, ethnically and religiously, but they're still Slavs. So, you know, who cares yeah. to them? It's just another Slavic nation that gets um, grilled. Hmm. Their, their, their actions historically against Syria and the Kurds is a good example of how they oh. use people as tools in the agenda and drop them just as quickly. The, the 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 thing for me that I worry about, and I, and I agree with both of you. Sadly, I see this becoming the, just the extension of the continuate war on terror, however you want to frame it. It just it's ongoing. Uh, that I see this being waged, and we discuss the idea of the extremists being built, and the, you know from the CIA 2015 forward or even further back, building a threat that they're now going to try to wage and bring home to us, which I think kind of ties this all together about whether that's the war on domestic terror and we see them building it over here and, you know, how that all ties together, you know, we could theorize all day long, but I'm really concerned about how that will be used to drive in some of these larger agendas. Maybe we can, you know, connect well, again in, in a month or so and talk about it, but, you know. Just, just yeah. a, a closing thought, which, yep. you know, I think will make people shiver if they really realize it. For the whole generation when I was, before and during the time I was in British intelligence, the big bogeyman, I mean, the serious bogeyman, because the intelligence guys actually thought it could really blow back on us, was white jihadis, right? And for a whole generation from the Arab Afghans through Chechnya, through the Balkans, there were only a very few, um, to use the modern term, white passing jihadis, you know, for example, Bosniaks or particularly light skinned Caucasians. The horror, I think I can hardly describe now, as it suddenly dawned on me that you can take a Slavic Christian, nominally Christian person from, you know, from the Ukraine in this case, give them a bit of exposure to this stuff and they are indistinguishable in ideology, uh, in, in bloodthirstiness, um, in, in, in psychopathy from the kind of takfiri jihadis that you've seen in Syria. You don't actually need them to have any Islamic background at all. You just need to expose them to a few years of the BBC and at the sharp end a bit of training camps and they will do the bidding. Uh, of the city of London and Manhattan, just as surely yeah. as some Islamic jihadists will. Right. And this can be spun out in Western Europe. Th this is where vanilla ISIS comes in. We've already heard this term floated and the, the overlap between, I mean, how in the world a white supremacist entity would work with somebody. I mean, it just doesn't make sense, right? But it, it is clearly being driven in. And what you just described there is a really interesting connection. And I think we just, I think it's important right now, as always, to kind of put a fine point on it, is it anything, whether we're talking Russian government or U.S. government, we need to be very skeptical of what we're being fed today. Because in any political situation, especially war, there's always agendas being spun. But in this case, we it's impossible to miss the continuity of this agenda that goes long before what the West and specifically the U.S. government, in my mind, or as you guys are seeing it more prominently, the U.K. government, driving this continuation through this and into the next agenda. And so I just, we need to continue to be skeptical and please 
continue to invest time into the work of Vanessa, Eva, Alex, and continue to share this information because you're not hearing this stuff anywhere else. So thank you guys for being here today and, and going through this. I really hope we can connect again. Any final thoughts you want to leave us with before we wrap up today? No, I think I just wanted to add to that and say, of course, the austerity measures that that began before COVID, but that were um, intensified through COVID are leading to a rise in what can be described as the far right in Europe. Now, of course, you have the blowback from Ukraine of effectively ultra-nationalists, Nazis, fascists, which will join those already burgeoning um, far-right forces um, in Europe. And that, you know, that serves as a, a, I don't know, I mean, it's it's a terrifying thought for me, even more so, actually, than the kind of Takfiri blowback from, from Syria, because they tend to really settle into communities um, and although you know the the crime levels were being played up at certain points during the refugee the refugee crisis etc which of course is engendered by western expansionism and, and military adventurism mm. um, but now you have um, as the press have been describing it of course they look like us they are like us because they're white blue-eyed blonde-haired they come from Europe, and yet potentially they're carrying, I think, a far greater threat um, than those people over there in the Middle East, which has been the threat since 9-11. But I think, as Whitney pointed out in, in her you know, excellent article, this is now the next orchestrated threat. And, and for me, it's, it's, it's bone-chillingly frightening. I agree. And I think that it's definitely, I mean, I would see it as one and the same almost, right? We see this overlap and it, and it's rightfully, we, we should be concerned about this. I think what they're, I, we just, in my mind, we need to remember whether it's 1948 forward, as Alice pointed out long before that, that they've been building something like this this whole time, which doesn't mean that there's not valid pe- people that, you know, people that are of that mindset, but they have cultivated, grown it. And I agree, it's very, very alarming. And I think what we just need to consider is how this will be used to drive in these goals. So. Thank you so much, both. Did you have any final thoughts, Alex? I think that's all been eloquently said. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here, guys. And I look forward to speaking with you in the future. As, as always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.